John Green died on May 28, 2016. If you're listening to my voice, then chances are you know who John was and are familiar with his work, but perhaps not, so let me give you a quick synopsis. John was a journalist. He lived to describe truths to people. It was his profession, and based on his body of work, it was his passion. After serving in the Canadian Navy during World War II, John found himself publishing a local paper in Harrison Hot Springs, British Columbia. Of course, living in that area, he heard lots of stories about hairy creatures walking around on two legs, but apparently didn't take them very seriously until the late 50s. Like any good journalist, he had an open mind and became invested in trying to answer the question posed by all these encounters. What were these people seeing? He wrote in 1978 his answer to that question, and it's still considered to be the seminal book on the subject of cryptid primates in North America, Sasquatch, The Apes Among Us. I'm Brian Brown of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. It was another of John's books, The Sasquatch Fall from 1973, that was my first real exposure to the subject of Bigfoot when I was a kid. That and the rest of John's efforts made a deep impression on me, and by extension, my attitude toward the whole subject of hairy bipeds. Like any good journalist, he focused on fact. He told the accounts as they were related to him and didn't try to invent fantastic explanations or embellish them for dramatic effect. In fact, his voice in the field was always in favor of the simplest possible explanation. I admired that about him and have tried to emulate it in everything I've done on the subject. John Green was my role model. In a lot of ways, the attitude John embodied and inspired in me was the same that drew me to the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. Like John, the NAWAC is focused on finding answers and drawing this mystery to a close. And like John, the group does its work in as straightforwardly a way as possible. One of our group's missions could have been taken directly from the example John Green set, to help further factual education and understanding to the public regarding the animal commonly referred to as Bigfoot. Well before John's death, we came up with the idea for this podcast. We bandied about many names before, over the course of that conversation, settling on a quite familiar phrase. It was simultaneously evocative and perfectly descriptive. It summarized the NAWAC's conclusions based on decades of field research and personal experience. But it was one John had already claimed, one that was very closely associated with his legacy. Prior to his death, John gave us permission to use his phrase as the title of this production. Of course, we could not know he would be gone so soon. He would be gone before having a chance to hear our attempt at continuing his example. He would be gone before knowing that we have dedicated this podcast, and in many ways, all the work we do, to his memory. This is the official podcast of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. This is Apes Among Us. Brandon Lentz. Brian Brown. Welcome. Welcome to this, the first episode of Apes Among Us, the official podcast of North American Wood Ape Conservancy. It's good to see you. It's wonderful to see you. It's good to be here. We've been working on this for quite a long time. How long? I think it's been a year and a half. It's been a year and a half. It's been a year and a half of planning. Planning, plotting, starting, stopping, starting again, stopping again. But here we are. Uh, We've been able to pull together this first show, um, and it's quite the show. Tell us what sort of things we're going to be talking about today. Well, the theme of this first episode is encounters, because we've had very many of them over the years in Area X, so this is just a few of them. 
And I think it's something that uh, a lot of people like to hear about. When you meet them and you start talking about this and they know that you're uh, involved in this subject, they want to know if you've seen anything, if you've heard anything, what's happened. I also think it's fitting because, as I said in the opening to the show, um, we've dedicated this to the memory of John Green. He was very gracious in allowing us to use the name Apes Among Us for our podcast prior to his death. And so it it seems fitting to me, uh, I think, since he was known for sort of publicizing and making uh, famous a lot of encounter reports that was sort of like his thing, that we center on that in this show. So we're going to be hearing quite a few members of, of the group. Uh, several conversations, including between you and I, about an encounter that, that we had shared together um, two summers ago. Um, and then at the end of the show, we're going to be talking about the Washed Up Project Monograph, which is our publication as a group uh, dealing with um, many years of, of, of research that we've done down there in the Washita Mountains. Yeah, 200 plus pages of research and encounters in that monograph. So we'll have Daryl Collier and Alton Higgins from the group on. Uh, that's towards the end of the show. Uh, we're going to start off first with you talking to one of our investigators about an interesting encounter he had with two upright figures down in the Washtenaw Mountains. So the theme of this episode is encounters, and I've brought Ed, an investigator with the NAWAC, here on the show to tell us about a very interesting encounter that he had last summer. Welcome, Ed. How's it going? Great, great. So you were there in Area X last year. Who else were you with on that team? Um, I was with um, two other investigators. One was uh, Alton Higgins, and the other one was uh, an airline pilot. Okay, so leading up to your encounter, had there been any sort of activity going on previous to that? No, we hadn't had much activity up to that point. It was uh, it was really hot. Uh, this was this was at the end of the summer, and so uh, there wasn't a whole lot of activity going on. We kind of wanted to make some activity happen, and so uh, that's kind of what led up to uh, the event that we're going to talk about. So how did you go about making that activity happen? Well, um, we decided to kind of maybe do like a... I guess in hunting terms, kind of like a drive. Uh, it wasn't necessarily a drive because you can't. I, I really don't believe you can drive these animals. It's more like a. Uh, it's more like a pull. You kind of pull them with you. <laughs> you know, you can't. Really push. You've had a lot of visual <laughs> yeah. encounters that way. Just yeah. people just walking, and they seem to follow people. They like following people for some reason. Exactly. You can't really push these animals. You might be able to pull them, but you can't push them. Um, but anyway, so. Uh, uh, Alton had decided, you know, uh, let's uh, take him and, and the other investigator over to another place that we used to call the mud hole. It was uh, where Alton first discovered some tracks many, many years ago. And so he wanted to go over there. This was probably, I don't know, maybe a mile, mile and a half from where we were staying at the cabins. About noon, I drove them over there in my truck, which was, again, about a mile away, and dropped them off. And they were going to set up a couple of blinds and do some other things, and I was going to drive back to camp. And so I probably left them there about 12.30, maybe 1 o'clock, and when I got back to camp, it was probably about 1. That's kind of where we were. Where we, were. we were about a mile away in position as far as position is concerned. And then later in the day, they were going to walk back to camp and see if they could maybe disturb something. Uh, again, I don't, I don't think uh, we had had much action up to that time. And so they said that they were going to head back around 5 o'clock back to camp. That was kind of the plan for the day. 
Okay, so you were positioned by the creek. Yeah, when I drove back to camp, I decided to position myself near a creek. It was actually a dry creek bed, which was probably, I don't know, two, three hundred yards away from camp. It was uh, in the brush, but on a dry creek bed. And then they were going to walk back to camp and hopefully disturb something, maybe pull something along with them. We didn't really know what was going to happen, but it was worth a shot anyway. Uh, and I was going to post up at that creek and try to inhibit any, anything seeing me. So I was sitting in the brush along the creek. And hopefully if they did pull or push something along with them, I would see it. And I was going to be concealed for a while. I actually set up at the position probably around 2.30 or 3 o'clock during the day because I had gone back to camp. I ate my lunch, kind of rested a little bit. It was really hot. Like I said, it was probably in the low 90s with, you know, and you know the humidity is really, really hot. In fact, it starts sprinkling when we were out there. So, you know, 90, 95 degrees with almost basically 100% humidity, it's it's uh, miserable conditions, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> and so I set up at the creek probably about 3 o'clock and basically just going to wait there for a couple of hours, set up my position, get in a nice concealed position, and just listen and watch, see if we hear anything before they proceeded back to camp. I wanted to be set up and situated for a couple of hours before they proceeded in my direction. And this is the same creek bed where we've had multiple visuals before. Oh, yeah. So you were yeah, in yeah. the right spot. There's been a, a lot of visuals in that same creek uh, over the years. That's correct. So Alton and the other teammate leave their positions and start walking the road back up to the cabin. What happened from there? It was about 5 o'clock. I was really starting to be conscious about 5 o'clock. If I'm going to see something, it's probably going to be around this time because they, you know, they told me that they were going to start back about 5 o'clock. Up until that point, I was kind of looking around in different directions to my south, to my east, west, north, in all different directions, looking for any kind of sign. And uh, I did hear some commotion. But about 5 o'clock, I focused my attention to the north because I knew that's where they were going to be coming from and uh, didn't hear anything except about 525. I heard a rock hit a gate, a big metal gate, and we all know what that sound is. If you've ever been in this place, you know what that sound is because other people have done it. We know that the apes have done it in the past. So I heard that sound. This is the gate that is near the road that locks up the property, basically. And so I heard a big rock. I don't know how big the rock was, but it had to be, I don't know, maybe what it sounded like was about softball size, probably. And it hit the gate really, really hard. And I immediately focused my attention to that gate. Uh, at that point, you know, <laughs> my attention is in that direction. It's either got to be one of two things. Only basically two things can make that sound. Uh, it's well, it's got to be something with hands, of course. And it's got to be either an ape or a human. <laughs> so I'm thinking at this point, maybe that's Alton and, and maybe that's, you know, maybe that's them. Maybe they're trying to stir up some sound, maybe trying to let the apes know that they're coming through. And they're going to be heading back to camp now just about any time. And so, you know, I should be seeing them along the road. Of course, I didn't know at this point I couldn't really see the road. Uh, I didn't know that because I was a little farther back in there than what I thought. Uh, I couldn't really see the road. But anyway, I heard the rock hit the gate. And at that point, I didn't hear anything for about five minutes. I didn't hear or see anything. About six minutes later, I see two figures right over by where I heard the sound because my, my, my attention was focused in that direction. I was looking in that way for six or seven minutes, and in that exact direction, I saw two figures. Uh, one of them was standing a little taller than the other one. The other one was a little shorter, uh, and, and I noticed that the one in the rear was gray. The one in the front was brown, and not now that I think about it, it looked like the, the one in the front was kind of uh, – looked like he was kind of – maybe leaning over a little bit, but the rear one was standing perfectly erect. I did see the face of the rear one and had what looked to me like a, you could see flesh color on the face. What I mean by flesh color is like a pale color. And I saw big inset eyes 
you have to understand this image that I see happened like a half of a second, so I didn't have much time to, to see anything, but that's what I saw. It's just, you know, once you see that image, it's kind of imprinted into your head. And so I, I saw that, and at that point, I saw them moving basically kind of my direction. At that point, they're, you know, they're at my 12 o'clock position, and at that point, they're about probably 60 to 70 yards away. And as I see them, they're moving basically in my direction, but kind of like in an arc towards me. And what I mean by that, if you're looking at a bird's eye view, they're at my 12 o'clock position and then creating an arc coming towards me a little closer. They leave my position at the three o'clock position. So it's kind of an arc that they're making towards me. And, you know, they're at the closest point. They're at my 130 position, basically, if that makes sense. Um, Yeah, that makes sense. So what was your first thought upon seeing these things walking towards you? Well, the first thing I thought was, there goes my teammates. Because, you know, I saw a face, I saw eyes, I saw two erect figures. <laughs> the first thing I thought was, hey, there goes my teammate. There they are. I've been waiting for them. Right, and that, that happens to so many people down there. They see these things for the first time, and they don't know how to describe it. So they just say, oh, well, that must be this guy. That must be my teammate. But Yeah, and, that, and that's exactly what I thought. Especially when I saw when I saw the, the flesh-colored skin on the face and them walking erect. That's, the, that's exactly the first thing I thought. All right, they, there's my teammates. They're making their way this way. So there was a brown one and a gray one, right? Right. That, that's correct. The front one was the brown one, and the rear one uh, was the gray one. So how long did it take you to realize that what you looked at or what you just saw wasn't your teammates at all? It actually took about a day. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> it took about a day to figure out, and I'll kind of go into this a little bit later, but it took me it took me a while to kind of process the information. So when you got back up to your teammates and you met up with them, you, you realized that they weren't even wearing the same color clothing of the things that you saw, right? Well, I realized that it wasn't them, and if I could talk about what I saw before I met up with Alton, as I see the two figures walking, there's a, a brief delay, probably about four or five seconds. Now, the whole sighting was probably from start to finish, I would say probably seven to eight seconds, but I didn't see him for that long. When I first saw him, that was a, you know a brief half-second image blip in my head. I see this image. I see these two figures walking. They're basically walking kind of towards me. And then there's about a four or five second delay, and then I see them again at my 1.30 position, 1.30 or 2 o'clock position. Now they're about 40 yards away from me, and they're walking exactly parallel to me. And I see them pretty good. One, the the front one, uh, the brown one, is about five yards ahead of the rear one. And I could tell that the the rear one, the gray one, is about a half a head taller than than the front one. And they're walking parallel to me, and they're, you know, I can tell that they're walking with purpose, and they're walking briskly and with purpose, I guess is the best way I can describe it. And I see basically from the waist up, I don't really see their arms moving, but I see from the waist up, and my mind is really focused on the rear one. That was the one that I was focusing on the most, but I could see them both as they're moving through there about five yards apart. And, you know, I'm only looking through about a 10 or 15-yard window. And so that happened about probably two and a half to three seconds long where they're walking through there, through that window. And I noticed also something that was very, very odd to me when I, while I was watching them was, and at this point, I'm still thinking these are my teammates. And as I see them walking through the forest, I noticed that their heads are not moving up and down at all, but it looks like as if they're riding in a motorboat or something, you know, just across the lake or something. Their, their heads are just steady across, very smooth, very smooth action. Their heads are not bobbing, just moving. And that's what really... At that point, I knew something was not right, and something clicked in my head. What is going on at this point? What, what, what am I seeing right here? And so at this point, I've probably seen him for maybe three seconds, the half a second uh, when I first saw him, which was about 60 yards away, and then for about two and a half seconds as they're going through this 15-yard window, which is about 40 yards away, walking parallel to me. 
And then, of course, they're out of the scene. They go through the forest. I don't see them any longer. So the whole thing probably lasted seven or eight seconds, one half-second interval and another about two-and-a-half-second interval. Um, and, of course, I saw them better at the at the end there when they are walking closer to me. But I can I noticed that their heads weren't moving. And that's that's the point where there, were, there was a question, I guess, a question mark in my head. Yeah, I've seen that same sort of movement that you described, the very fluid, smooth movement. When I had my first sighting down there, it moved exactly the same way, except for it was a little hunched over. But it wasn't swinging its arms, and its head didn't move at all. It's just a complete fluid, smooth motion. And it sounds like that was the same type of thing that you saw. Yeah, I mean, that was exactly what I saw. I mean, you can definitely tell the difference between a, a human when they're walking and an ape like this. It was definitely different, and I could tell that something wasn't right, <laughs> right within my head anyway. So at what point did you actually accept that what you saw were two upright apes and weren't actually humans? Well, at that point, I still thought it was my teammates, and I waited there for a couple of minutes because I was in my mind. I was, I was trying to figure out and process the information of what I just saw. I know I saw two upright figures walking. I thought they were people. That's kind of what I was expecting to see. I was expecting to see some people. And I sat there for a couple of minutes, and I thought, what just happened here? What did I just see? That was, that was kind of strange. You know, I was trying to process it in my head. So what I did is I called him on the radio. I said, Alton, where, where are you guys? And he said, well, we're, we're back at camp. I said, oh, you're back at camp. And, I, and, and again, in my, that confirmed within my, in my head that, oh, okay, I just saw them walk back to camp. And so I, at that point, decided to go, to go back. Our ambitious uh, drive for the day or hunting episode for the day was over. So I thought, I, I guess I'll go back to camp. And when I, started, when I got back to camp, I started you know, asking them questions. And the first thing I asked when I got back, I said, did you guys knock a rock against the gate down there at the end of the property here on the road? And they said, no, uh, we didn't hit anything on the gate. I said, what do you mean you didn't hit anything on the gate? I said, I heard you guys hit the rock on the gate. And they said, no, we didn't hit a rock on the gate. I said, well, something just hit a rock back there at the gate, and then I saw you guys walking down through back to camp, and then at that point, we knew that something was not right, and so at that point, we started talking about what I had, what I had just encountered, and it was kind of reassuring to me that what I did see was different. It wasn't them, but we did have to go and investigate more about what I just saw. So you went back the next day, and you did a recreation of the event. You took a couple other team members down there. How tall did they actually turn out to be? Yeah, we had a couple more people come into camp at that point. So there were several other members of the organization come in. And so the next day, we decided to go over and recreate the events. I hadn't even gone back to the place where I had had the sighting yet. And in fact, when we went over to where the sighting was, I went to where I was posted up. And another person went over to where I had saw the two figures. And I hadn't even been over there yet at that point. And he was kind of holding up um, sticks and some other things that he had that was with him. And where he was walking, we figured out where, where I saw the two figures walking. And where he was walking was, I guess, about 40 yards away. We, we finally pinned down the location, figured out where it was, but something still wasn't right. And the reason wasn't why it wasn't right is because all I could see on him was basically from the shoulders up. All I could really see was his head. And what I saw was basically from like the waist up. And so something still wasn't right. I knew the distance was right. I knew the location was right. At that point, I was starting to really process in my head, what did I really see here? And when he, when he actually lifted up to a position where I thought I saw the heads of these things, it was probably about seven and a half feet tall. And so that's why it wasn't making sense where he was, what I actually saw. And when we actually figured out how tall these things were, it really sunk in at that point. 
So how often do you think about that? <laughs> quite often. I think about it, think about it quite often. I, I would like to point out, too, that where the actual apes were, not on the road. Uh, my teammates had gone on the road, which were probably another 20 yards beyond where I saw the apes, and the road was covered with brush. And so I couldn't even see the road. Uh, right. You fact, can't we, see the road from where you were posted. Yeah, where I was posted up in the creek, you can't even see the road. And and my teammates had walked along the road to go back to camp, and you can't even see the road uh, from where I was posted up. And so, uh, you know, and when they told me they had they hadn't passed through where I had saw the apes, and then they actually passed on the road, it was I tell you what, it was a it was an eye opening experience. I had to, I experienced other things in the Watchtown Mountains there, but I had never seen an ape up, up until this point. And to be honest. It, it was very eye-opening. It really hit it, it hit home at that point, and, uh, and I think about it a lot. You made a couple of really, really excellent drawings after the fact of what you saw. Would you mind if we released that and put it in with the show notes? Yeah, yeah, that'd be fine. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, Brandon. Well, now we're going to do something a little different because even though you and I are the hosts of the show, we're going to sort of interview ourselves to talk about this thing that happened to us. We were together when this happened along with some other people, um, but it just sort of fits into the, the general theme of this first episode where we're talking about encounters and experiences of the group and that sort of thing. Um, so we're just going to try to figure out a way to interview one another <laughs> as we go through this. This is new. Well, we spent a lot of time together down in X, so we've yeah. had a few things happen with both of us being there at the same time. So Correct. we have to talk about it somehow, I guess. But this in particular thing, uh, I'll set the stage and then we'll sort of walk through what happened. It was... Uh, a week we were there, it was ridiculously hot. Like yeah, it was 105. In the middle of August. Yeah, it was terribly hot. And uh, so hot that, that in the middle of the day when the heat was really at its peak, everything shut down. Like there were no, like the bugs weren't even making any noises. It was like the whole forest just was taking a siesta. Yeah, it was dead. I, I've never actually experienced it like that down there. But it was, as I said, I mean, literally 105 degrees. It was super duper hot, like every single day. Um, so at night, you know, typically it is not unusual to be in, in, in that area and, and at night to have a little fire or, or even some tiki torches if you don't want to have uh, a fire. But we were doing something a little different that week. We were actually sitting just in the pitch black. Right. Because when it's 105 degrees all day, why right. do you want to sit at fire, <laughs> just sit by a fire at night? You don't you even know? want to see a flame <laughs> from 20 feet away. What was interesting is there was there was no moon. At least the moon wasn't out when we were out. It may have come out later, but I think it may have been a new moon that week. So there was like no moonlight. So all we really had was starlight. It was starlight, and it was also the night of the Perseid meteor oh, shower. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I remember that now. Yeah. I remember that now. Well, that just completely nails exactly the date. It was uh, not this past summer, but the summer before that. So 20, 2015. 15, right. Yeah. Uh, we were there with uh, David Mijazuski and Justin Wolf. And Tim Sievert was there. And also Tim there. Sievert was there, right. Yes, yes. Yeah, Tim was there too. So we're sitting in the dark, and this is this is relatively new. I, I was thinking that the animals in our experience like to get close. They like to be able to see us. That's my perception of, of, of the observed behavior that we've seen there. And um, so we're hoping that if it's as dark as humanly possible, they will feel really quite comfortable uh, in, in observing us and, and getting close. And, and we had both a night vision uh, scope, I think, I think I had my night vision there. Yeah, you had a next gen there. 
Yeah, yeah, I have like my my super duper good night vision, but we also have the handheld thermal. Right. And that was when things got interesting. Yeah, as soon as it started getting dark, it must have been around 9, 10 o'clock, we just started taking turns scanning with the thermal, looking up at the mountainside behind the cabin. And we were seeing just odd, round shapes giving off heat signatures, just sort of slowly moving back and forth and ducking behind things. And we were passing around this thermal trying to determine what exactly we were seeing. And we were getting really frustrated at it because we couldn't figure it out. It was just a a warm heat signature that was just a ball. So what happens in, in when you're using a thermal is, especially if you're using it through foliage like that, is the foliage blocks. So oftentimes you'll see little bits and pieces of thermal uh, hits. You'll see some little spots of, of brightness, but you won't necessarily see an entire animal shape because typically they're not any animal, whether it's a deer or a fox or a wood ape. Uh, they're typically not standing in areas where you'll see them perfectly. That's typically, I said. Um, so, yeah, we, we had sort of seen some stuff up there, but nothing that was enough to, like, really get us going. And it was somewhat frustrating because you couldn't actually see anything. Right. And there was definitely something that was giving, giving off a heat signature. And we actually walked up there. I don't know if you remember this. We walked up to it towards the mountainside when we were actually throwing rocks at it, trying to get it to move. And it never did. Right. Right. I do. I do remember that. So um, why don't you say what happened to you, and then I'll give my perspective. Well, what happened to me was I was scanning intermittently with the thermal every five to ten minutes, and on one of my intermittent scans behind the outhouse that we use, there was a hunched-down figure, couldn't have been more than 20 to 30 yards away from us, hunched down behind the outhouse. And when I say hunched down, like kneeling down, and what I saw was a pointy head and broad shoulders but it didn't look like a full-sized animal it looked sort of man-sized it looked like a smaller thing but it was definitely definitely had a head and shoulders and it was down on the ground and it was down on the ground right yeah which is interesting because that would have been relatively out in the open but again it is pitch black i cannot see you and you were sitting i was sitting right next to you feet away from me i could i literally could not see you so it was absolutely black as a sack right so you say this to me And you hand me the thermal, and I'm like, okay, I'll see what you're looking at, right? And I put it to my eye. Now, with with a thermal, you can can make out shapes if they're warm, right? So um, some of the outbuildings uh, were still generating heat, or they were a different temperature than the background. So you, you could make out some of these buildings vaguely. You could make out trees. In fact, the trees, this was actually a problem that I had in interpreting what I was seeing later on, the trees were super bright. They were actually the hottest thing up on the slope because they would have been out in the sun all day long and just absorbing that solar energy all day all day long. Um, I put the thing to my eye and instantly see what you say you're seeing, but I don't see it in the same place. Well, you're not even looking in the same direction. As no, I but did. I couldn't see Which where you were looking because right. I couldn't see you, right? So you're telling me, oh, it's it's you know behind the outhouse. I put the thing to my face. I don't even move. I'm just like, I literally put it to my eye and I look straight up and not behind the outhouse, but behind this structure we call the woodshed. No, I'm sorry. That wasn't the woodshed. Uh, whatever we called that other little structure, that the shed, east shed, the east shed. Right. Yeah. Um, I see up on the slope. I mean, it was like from the cover of a book about Bigfoot. It was, it was the outline of a pointy head. And shoulders, and it was standing between two trees. And what was confusing to me at first 
was that the trees were brighter than it was. Now, every other time I had used the thermal, the animal, whatever animal I saw, whether it was the fox or, you know, a deer or whatever, that was always the hottest thing I was seeing. But in this case, the hottest thing I was seeing was the trees. So they were very bright white. And the figure of what I saw, which looked exactly like a full-grown wood ape, um, was actually not as bright. So that was confusing to me. It was also confusing to me that I looked up and instantly saw what appeared to be a wood ape. But I saw it up on the slope. So you say to me, oh, there's, you know, uh, the, the, I think I see something behind the, the outhouse. And I say, no, it's behind the shed. And then I give you back the scope and you say... It's behind the outhouse, Brian. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm like, so I get the scope back and I'm like, no, you idiot. It's behind the shed. I mean, I'm not even looking behind the outhouse because I can clearly see what appears to be. I mean, again, I've looked at that slope dozens, maybe a hundred times through night vision and thermal and all kinds of things. And I'd never seen, you know, when you look at one area a lot, you tend to remember what all the things are. Oh, there's a rock right there. There's whatever. So you kind of get used to seeing the things that give off heat. But this was not one of those things. It was in a spot where I'm not used to seeing that kind of figure. So for me, it's like, I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm looking right at it, but you keep telling me it's somewhere else. So we kind of do this Abbott and Costello bit back and forth where you're like saying, it's the outhouse. I'm like, no, it's the shed. It's the outhouse. It's the shed. And we, so we pass it around to, to David and, and to, to Justin and to Tim. If I remember correctly, Justin, I think Justin said he saw it. He saw the one that you saw. Right. Uh, Miz didn't really see anything. I think he was having a hard time interpreting the colors. He wasn't really experienced with with the thermal technology. I don't remember if Tim said he saw anything. Yeah, I don't don't either. So we decide we're going to get up and walk over there. And I follow you. And you follow me. <laughs> well, this is the best part of the whole story from my standpoint, because you like the what you think you're seeing is down on the ground and behind the, the outhouse. And I'm not walking in that direction. You're op- I get up. You're, and, yeah, you're walking in the complete opposite <laughs> direction of the thing. I'm that going I'm somewhere seeing. else. But you follow me, which I have to give you credit for that. So what I did is I, you know, I have uh, a shotgun and my shotgun is usually it's mostly for protection purposes. But at the end of my shotgun, I have a very bright white light. So I. I'm looking right at where this thermal hit is and I turn on my light and what I immediately recognize is that there's a, a window in the foliage there and I'm actually seeing up onto the slope. But what's difficult for me to, how far away do you think that was from where we were sitting? 30 yards. Really? I would have said a little, little 20, further. 30, 40. Yeah, somewhere. It I mean, it's, it's in there. It's 50, it wasn't incredibly far. Less than 50 yards. It was definitely yeah. less than 50. Yeah, less than 50 yards. So we're walking over and I have my light on that spot and I realize that I'm seeing the slope behind and, and but it's difficult to discern anything. What I'm actually seeing is sort of like just shades of gray and sort of a modeled whatever. And I don't actually see, I don't see anything. I don't see like a discernible shape and we're walking across and I'm walking in a, I'm like, I'm walking through the fire ring, which thankfully had no fire in it, but I'm, I want to be in a beeline for this thing. And I didn't take my light off that spot. I didn't even blink my eyes. I remember. And, but you're following me like, where the hell is he going? <laughs> I don't uh, know. I, I was the new guy at the time. So I just figured, OK, I better listen. I'll follow this guy. I don't, I don't know what he's know, talking I don't about. Know what's but, going on. All right. And uh, so what's interesting to me is when we closed maybe two thirds of the distance between where we had been sitting and where the figure was, which is, again, is up on the slope. So we're not actually in any danger of, of rushing this thing because you have to get on the slope and then go up the slope, which is going to be quite difficult. Um, and I'll remember this as long as I live and it, it made the hair on the back of my neck stand up, but I saw it step to its left. It was, 
I mean, literally invisible. It was completely camouflaged, even in the light, until it took a step to its left. And then I saw it move. And so then, what did you see when you saw it step away? Did you see any detail of it? I can't say that I saw detail. What I saw was the, the uh, like pretty much the entire window, the entire foliage window, I saw the whole thing shift to the left. And it was all gray. It was perfectly gray. It wasn't brown. It wasn't red. It wasn't the color that I may have been expecting. I wasn't expecting the gray one, even though we've seen gray animals in there. Old gray, um, we like to call it. Yeah. Though there, there probably is more than one gray one. But yeah, the old gray is sort of the, the, the name we've given the really big gray one. I just saw it step. I just saw it move and it moved sort of like it just sort of like you could you could feel it just it basically sidestepped, you know, from from where it was standing to its left one step and it was gone and and I couldn't see it anymore. And uh, I was just sort of like, I, I mean, I was stunned. You were gobsmacked, I, you know, and, and, and it's funny because we we went and sat back down after that. Once I saw it move and all my hair stood up <laughs> And I had a really hard time accepting it's it's sort of like, you know, we tell people we, I told you before you went in there for the first time that was that your first time. That was your second time, second time, second time. But I tell people before they go in there the first time and and we say it as a group, you know, you you think you're going to see the Patterson Gimlin film subject. You think you're going to see Patty. You think you're going to see this thing sort of like walking or whatever. And, and in most cases, what you see is something completely different. You see a flash of color, you see something walking sort of like Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. I mean, you see all these other things and your brain has a hard time um, interpreting it because it's not what Bigfoot is supposed to look like. But in this case, it was exactly what Bigfoot was supposed to look like, at least the thermal image that I saw. Pointy head, broad shoulders. But I remember telling you that I wasn't even going to write it down in the journal. Yeah, I, was, I remember I was, arguing with you about my that. My brain that was like night. rejecting it. My brain was like saying, no, that did not just happen. You didn't. And I, I have no explanation for that. I have no, I can't even conceive of why I felt that way. But I like, I wouldn't let myself. And I just remember thinking on it and thinking on it. And just like, I wouldn't, I don't know. It was the weirdest thing. And when we went and sat back down, this thing that I saw behind the outhouse was no longer there. Right, it was gone. Completely gone. gone. Right. Completely Probably, gone. Probably. So what I, my interpretation of this event, being the grizzled wood ape expert that, <laughs> that I am, my interpretation of this is that it's entirely possible that there were two animals there. That you saw one that was down low, possibly younger, possibly more curious. This is something that we've discerned from their behavior, that, that there may be curiosity involved. And it may be the case that the younger animals are more into this. This is complete conjecture on our part. They're oddly voyeuristic. They are. And and so this is this is not the first time that I've I've had an experience that makes me believe there was a wood ape like just, you know, literally feet away. Um but, but I think what happened was that that one was sort of creeping up to get a better view of us. And the one up on the hill may have been sort of observing and, and being the backup. And it could be the case that when that other one had time to retreat and get away, it felt comfortable to move. Because it didn't move when I first lit it up at all. And another thing that I, I have no explanation for is I didn't see any eye shine whatsoever. And I've had experiences in there where much, much dimmer light created brilliant eye shine. So I don't, I can't even explain that. I have no, I just, I can't explain that. I saw no glimmer of eye shine. I just saw the thing move when it stepped, which if you're of the paranormal mind, oh, it was interdimensional or no, I just think it was beautifully camouflaged. They're know? masters of their environment. Yeah. They can disappear yeah. in seconds. And I think that's what happened that night. So what happened for me 
the, the way I was able to finally like come to terms with this event is, is the next day we decided to do a little bit of a recreation. I was standing pretty much in exactly the same spot. And I, was it Tim we sent up there? No, it was me. It was you. Yeah. I have a picture of Tim standing in the spot. Yeah, you took that the day after I left, but the morning after this event right. happened, I went up on the mountainside to right. stand in the same spot. And then, I mean, that's when it occurred. I mean, that's when I realized how big this thing was. Right. It that's was when all the puzzle pieces sort of came together. Absolutely you. massive. You filled maybe half the space between these two. These two big trees. I mean, these trees were probably foot and a half across. You know, they were they were big, mature, tall trees. And you were standing about where it would have been standing, more or less. It's really hard to say because it's a slope and it's just a window through the foliage. But your bulk, your mass, shoulder to shoulder, was maybe half. Yeah, I'm and, five foot ten and 190 pounds. And this thing was it was outside that frame. Whatever, however big it was, I was seeing the trees, not it. So it was wider than the gap between these trees and significantly taller. So it was at least twice as wide as I am. Much more massive than a grown man. And and that's what just sort of like I it was at that point I was like I, that could have been nothing else than than a wood ape. I, I don't know what else that could have been. It wasn't. Any other kind of animal that would have been there, you know, the, it was just, it was perfect, conical head, broad shoulders, you know, no discernible neck. I mean, this little pointy head went right into its shoulders. Yeah, it was. And then the, the lower body just sort of disappeared into the foliage. I drew a picture. Maybe we'll put that in the show notes. I think we should. When we post this. I think we should. Um, I, po- I, I drew that from memory. But anyway, that was, that was our shared one of our we've had other encounters there but that's probably like the best i think that's the most significant so far yeah i do count that as my best encounter in area x ever really better oh. than the ones running up the mountainside oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Because, bravo yeah yeah because um that happened so quickly and i was in totally unprepared for it and like where i was mentally at that stage uh i wasn't even i was really really close to you know, accepting that they were there, but I had never seen one, you know, so uh, I, I was totally unprepared for that event. Um, my view was probably the worst of anyone who had a view. It was over very, very quickly. Um, it was impactful. And but what I saw up on the slope again, I saw I just I looked at it. I don't know how many times, half a dozen times, eight, ten times I, I saw it just standing there. Um, and I never bothered to look at it once. No, because you were looking at, I was looking at the thing that I was saying. Something else. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, uh, you live and learn. And, um, next time, if you tell me you think it's somewhere, I will look where you're saying (laughs) as well as where I see. Well, maybe you shouldn't. I don't know. I don't know. So anyway, that that was, that was our, uh, that was our shared encounter. This is Paul Bowman Jr. coming to you from the Coffee House Roundtable. To my left is Professor Alton Higgins. Alton, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I live in Oklahoma City. I'm a retired biology professor. been retired for a few years now. Across from me is Dr. Ken Helmer. Ken Helmer, I'm coming from uh, Montgomery, Texas area. Trauma surgeon there. been a trauma surgeon for about 12 years. Uh, we've got uh, Daryl Collier on my right. Yep, Daryl Collier here uh, from Waco, Texas. Uh, Former Air Force Intelligence, I'm now in the financial industry, and I am on the board of directors for the NAWAC. Lastly, again, I'm Paul Bowman. I'm currently a graduate student at the University of Tulsa. I've gone back for my PhD in archaeology, which is interesting because I feel like a second-year law student. I, I think I know a whole bunch of stuff, but in reality, I don't know. You're kind of old in this, aren't you? I'm what they call one of those non-traditional types, I guess. What did you do before your student? 
police officer for 12 years. I was a Marine before that. Did some buffalo ranching uh, somewhere in between there. So, and I was I did some archaeological uh, field work before that. So, enough about us. Let's talk about the subject of wood apes. We just talk openly about the subject matter as if it was something completely mundane and ordinary. Yeah, we had one guy just he said something about, you know, we talk about it like it's white felt here, which we do because it's factual it's, for it's, many of us. It's, it's not a fantastical, theoretical issue for us anymore. Right. Now, I think that's interesting because we, we're very comfortable in talking about it because it's real. It's, it's as real as, as gravity, and most people are, are, are shocked at that. Well, yeah, I mean, but when you've seen something with your own eyes, you've made observations, it's no longer theoretical. That's the thing. Point. So, we yeah, just how seen can you not talk about it as though it's factual? It's one thing if, if, if we were seeing one guy in an ape suit, you know, trying to hoax us. That hasn't been our experience. We've had multiple sightings of multiple different individuals, different colors, different shapes and sizes, doing different things. Not to mention all the numerous incidents of rock throwing, wood knocks, and everything. Just between the four of us in here, we've seen more tracks than we can. Well, it's funny, though, because, you know, when I first got into this, it was more out of looking for an adventure. You know, I, I always thought the Patterson-Gimlin film was a real animal, you know, as a surgeon who knows anatomy. To me, the, the muscles are all in the right spots. I mean, what's supposed to be there is there. You can see a trapezius. You can see a tricep or deltoid. You can see his calf muscles yeah. move, his thigh. Yeah. So, for me, it was kind of like, well, you know, all these people are saying they're seeing things. You know, I'm curious. I was looking for a little adventure as someone who hunted my whole life and wasn't hunting much at the time. I thought, well, I'm going to go see what this is about. I still remember when the first <laughs> meeting you came to. I mean, you had a rugby shirt on. Yeah. I remember. Well, that was amazing, that meeting, because I went there thinking, these guys, if I show up, you know, this was at a Gander Mountain or something. Yeah, it was. I've never met you guys. And there was Spring, Texas. 40 or 50 people in the room. Yeah. You know, they came to see you. I was sitting there, and... I said, if these people start talking about these animals as shape-shifting and coming from outer space and mind reading, mind reading, I'm out of here. And I always remember one of the first things. So you Darryl, sat by the door, huh? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and and Daryl was there, and Daryl got up, and, and it was funny because one of the first things he said was, you know, you know, these are real animals. I said, you're at the wrong place. Yeah, if you think all this other stuff, you're at the wrong place. I said, okay, and he piqued my attention. And I don't remember all of what else was talked about, but I always remember one gentleman stood up, and he was probably in his 40s, and, you know, you'd ask who that experience is, and a people raise their hands. And this guy stood up and started telling his story. And mid-story, he starts crying. And he couldn't tell his story. You remember this? Yeah, I remember that guy. Man, it sure seems like this guy really saw something that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that freaked him out. Yeah. And, and it, you know, again, piqued my interest. Yeah. So anyways, when I, when I first got into this, you know, you, you wanted to go out and have an experience. I wasn't a believer. There's still skepticism to me, and I knew something was going on. I didn't know what it was. Oh, there was, right up until the time you saw Blackie. You were still yeah, skeptical I was always skeptical, all the way up until yeah. I saw my, I mean, something was going on, but it was always, well, what, you know. Yeah, yeah. What is it? What is this thing? Before you actually have that sighting, you know, you, you want things to happen. When things happen, it's exciting. Then you see one. And all of a sudden, your whole world changes. And yeah. Just flips upside on you. Like, wow, these. It's no longer theoretical. Yeah, there's, there's almost a paradigm shift. This animal that's not supposed to exist. Now yeah. you're, you're, you're making a jump from right. your own personal discovery to now you're starting to look for answers. For me now, it's I want to end this question. Yeah, it's a different mission it's now. It's a different for mission. For yeah. Me. yeah. For before, it was a mission of personal discovery. Now it's a mission to really to change science. And you know, even though as a group the mission has always been to yeah. discovery, personally right. that wasn't yeah. my mission. Now it's changed. It's more like 
my mission really is aligned with the group. Yeah, yeah. I don't need to prove it to myself. Right, sure. So I'm not a believer. You know, I, I mean, I know it exists. Absolutely. It's kind of like when you first go with deer hunting. You're new to it. You're new to the equipment and the strategies and, and really the animal. And when you really want to see a deer, yeah. and then when you once you see a deer or you kill your first deer, then you start thinking about strategy. You start wanting to understand the habitat and what they eat and how they eat and what, what their adaptations to the woods and the seasons are. And so you start really delving into the, the history of the animal and, and, and how it functions. And so those are the kind of things I'm looking for yeah. now. You know, it, it seems extremely myopic, but you think about this, this phenomenon and you think, okay, you're thinking about one single solitary ape. And when you come to the realization that there's more than one ape in this little valley that you're researching, there's a whole troop of these animals. And they, they work together. They have to hunt together. They're working against you and, and around you. And so it's like you've got this huge dynamic phenomenon going on around you. It's not just seeing an ape walking across the, you know, the creek. Right. Now you're dealing with multiple animals, and they, that's their habitat. And it's a real verifiable animal. And so the, there's so many other angles now that we can we can look at versus when you first right. were on a personal mission exactly. to prove it to yourself. Exactly. Now it becomes a much more broad broad you can, mission. You become more of a student. First time you catch a eight pound bass, man, you're all excited, right? Yeah. But if you're a pro bass fisherman, you never caught an eight pound bass. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're a bass fisherman, it's like you said. I mean, you know what bass eat, where they hang out, water temperatures, how they make some change depths. You know all that sort of stuff. Yeah. That's yeah. what we're trying to understand now. Right. Before, it's, we had to get lucky. We all got lucky, right? Oh, there goes one. First one you saw, you just got lucky. You were walking down oh, absolutely. a trail, there, yeah. and it just jumped in front yeah, of you. Yeah, that was just... Right? The ones we're starting to see, and the reasons we're starting to see more, is because so now we're understanding different. their behavior yeah. and, and how they move. We don't understand it at all fully, but at least we got our you know, pinky in the door. We're yeah. making minor predictions right. about... about what they're doing and when they're doing it and how they're doing it and how we can somehow interact with that and intercept them. Capitalize on it. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, let's talk about some of the strangest of the strange things. And this is, for many people, this is a, in itself is a very strange, a weird topic. But within the subject matter and our collective experiences, what are some of the most, the weirdest of the weird? Weirdest of the weird, huh? Alvin, how about you? Well, it's interesting you talk about, you know, how we deal with this subject like it's, you know, a normal thing because of the experiences that we've had. But even within that concept, there are things that happen that blow your mind. We were talking about this uh, earlier. One of the things that comes to my mind is things that you hear. You know, we've seen them, and that might be, you know, weird enough to a lot of people. But, man, there, there are things that we've heard that we don't have any other explanation for that you know, defy explanation. Like what? Explain. Yeah, well, you were there for one of them, for me. We, we were at the cabin that uh, we went to for years, and we showed up there, and I went on top of the roof to, to chuck off the rocks, because, you know, we didn't know how those rocks got up there, so that was kind of our normal operating procedure was to... Well, we know how the rocks get up there. Yeah, well, I, but, up there. but <laughs> even from our perspective, even from our perspective, we, we would say, well, you know, maybe people came here while we were away and threw some rocks. So we yeah. just a standard operating procedure. Sure. We we clear the roof. We yeah, clean the roof. Right. We we just arrived. We just there. arrived. We're cleaning the roof. Cleaning off. the roof off everything. So anything new landed up there, we know it was exactly. up there. Yeah. yeah. So I climbed up on the roof, which later proved not to be a great idea for me. But at that time I climbed up on the roof and it's a tin roof. And you know how noisy they are. They buckle and they make these loud noises. Corrugated metal. Yeah. yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I was up there chucking stuff off, and you know, two or three other guys that were on the ground, and they started hollering at me, "Help! Help! Stop! Stop! Stop!" 
So I stopped, so I, and you know, because they were hearing something that I couldn't hear because I was right by, I was on the roof. You were, making, while you were still up on the roof walking around. Yes, yes. Yeah, there's a lot of crunching of the metal. Yeah, right. right. So you can't hear. Right. Because it's loud, you know, you're walking yeah. around. So Kenneth's hollering at me, stop, stop. So I stopped, and coming from this steep mountain slope, crazy as it sounds, it was noise that was comparable to what I was making. But there's no, there was no metal up there. As bizarre as it sounds, I'm like a big voice imitating the sound of the buckling metal roof. Now, there was something about 40 yards halfway up that little slope, and for about 8 or 10 seconds, it made the, mm-hmm. almost the same sound the album was making. It was weird. And so there is no way that it was a sort of bounce back. No, 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 no. And there was, no, no. people will ask. It was loud. It was loud. Yeah. And there was no metal up there for somebody right. to walk yeah, on. No. To, yeah. to, you know, some of us think that they are very good imitators. Yeah. It. But there was a time when you guys were trying to cut down a tree that had been felled across the road and you were sawing with the saws. Yeah, that was Brian Brown and uh, Brad McAndrews. We had gone out to um, to fix a tire and we, we came back in and there were three trees that had been felled across the road. And so we had to um, make a way through, we had to cu- cut a path, we couldn't we couldn't move the trees, so we had to cut a path through the trees over the side of the road. So we spent a good 30 to 45 minutes with a bone saw, that's all we had, cutting these, these small saplings down so we could get through there. I got in my truck to drive through the path that we had just cut, and I look up and I see Brian and McAndrews looking just frantic at me, and they're doing all these hand gestures, and. I can't hear them because I'm in the truck, and I stop the truck, and I get out, and, and I hear this freaky sound. This is definitely the weirdest of the weird for me. The thing that we could come closest to in, in giving it a description is a panther of a chimpanzee, but it was different. It was like, <laughs> and it went on for 15 or 20 seconds, and it just echoed throughout the whole valley. It was very loud. I mean, I, I didn't hear it at the first. I got out of my truck, and I heard like the last 10 seconds. They heard the whole thing. And then at the end, you hear these coyotes from the same general vicinity whimpering. Hmm. Like maybe they were scared or something. We went, we tried to go after it, but you know, you can't. I mean, it's definitely one of the most bizarre things out there. On that seen. note, on sounds, there's certain aspects that have been attributed to this animal that I just completely <laughs> from the start. Woodknocks were the first. And until I heard a woodknock, I remember you saying, well, what is it? What's making that sound? And I had no answer. And I knew I had no answer for it. But when I first started hearing wood knocks and return wood knocks, when yeah. we would you know produce them ourselves, that's when I became a proponent of wood knocks. And then the mimicry, I just I couldn't get there. So one of my weirdest things was everybody's asleep. I had my head against the back window, and I turned off all the lights, and all I had was my iPhone on with the light. And it wasn't 20 seconds after you know, I laid in the bed, I hear something walking up to the cabin, bipedal footsteps, and I hear some wood banging around. And then something starts talking, but it's garbled. It's but it's loud gibberish. It's like you know, just just weird gibberish. Yeah. And immediately when I heard it, I mean, I just got chills through my body, my you know goosebumps, which I've never had. I mean, I even had that when I saw one. To me, that was freaky. That was another so weirdness of the weird for me was a post speech. I heard you were on Overwatch, so Bones, you were providing Overwatch. I was standing out away from the cabin. Rick Hayes and Ed Harrison were in getting sleep inside the cabin. And we were just, th- just throwing a huge rock, size of a basketball, right down behind the cabin. And then I hear this. What the heck? What is that? You know, if you look at vocal cords of other primates, part of the way their head sits on their spine also determines a bit of their vocal 
all pharyngeal anatomy, right? Like the thyroid cartilages and all that. So it's not out of place that they could make those sounds or mimic Orangutans can produce full speech. Right. That's been documented. It's been videoed. Whether it sounds very similar to what we hear. Right. Whether or not they're making any sense or talking to each other, I don't know. And I'm not going to speculate well, on that. that. The but they do make weird sounds. I just, not, I, you sure. know, so many things that I was too skeptical on and I wasn't able to accept. I've had to backtrack and I've had to, um, had to eat some crow personally. Uh, I think that, and this is also related to sound, but the weirdest thing for me was, uh, was the, it sounds so mundane, but the car door slammed. That oh. one really got me down. Um, and it still perplexes me to this day, but Daryl, you were in the cabin taking a nap. Yeah. You've been out in the yeah, woods patrolling myself and Bob Strain and Rick Andrews. And we we're sitting in the shade by the east uh, porch mid-afternoon. I hear this extremely loud car door slam. It sounded like a 78 Lincoln. Slam! You yeah. know? So I, I looked over there, and I, I didn't see anything. And I said, y'all hear that? Because I said, Daryl, awake? And we all kind of looked around the corner and didn't see anything. Didn't think anything about it. We just assumed that you had gotten up and were getting something out of your truck. And about ten minutes later, you you come out of the cabin, yeah. all you know, yeah. bleary eyed, and you know, you just right. woken up, just taking the earplugs out, right? Yeah. And, and so we asked you, was that? Did you get something out of your truck earlier? Says, no. Well, right. then I went to the truck to slam it so that you could compare the sounds. And of course, you're like, oh no, that's not even close. No. Yeah, but we heard that kind of sound. It's, we've heard it a number of times. Lid yeah. Or door kind of sound for years, and we've gone yeah. over there. For the bunch of stuff. What's the people hooks movie? People can say that, but you hear vehicles coming for miles. Yeah. And you know 30 minutes before there. And if somebody comes down on foot, then no. So, Paul, are you suggesting it was a vocalization? Because we've tried, I don't know, over and over and over, going no, over there to, to reproduce the sounds. I don't think so. I think they're his metal or something. I mean, this sounded like a boulevard pimp slamming yeah. his, his Lincoln Continental door very loud. So, Alvin, I guess we're still on audio weird stuff. For me, the weirdest thing as well is the story you tell of the angel choir. No, I don't want to get into that. It's just it's uh, just a vocalization that we hear from time to time that sounds like a high-pitched singing. Why don't you want to get into that? Well, because it's weird. And, and, and this is the weirdest <laughs> of the weird. And the thing is, I think it's critical when you tell that story that we had been broadcasting music. Acapella, Byzantine monk chants. Yeah, the night before. Soprano, high, very high soprano vocals and tenors. Yeah, I was in my tent, and I was, you know, most everyone else was in the cabin. I was sleeping 40 yards yeah, away, you know, in my tent. And so when you're in that tent, I mean, you can hear everything. There's no obstruction to sound when you're in a thin wall tent. I don't know what awakened me, but it was about 4.15ish or so, I think. I'm hearing this kind of beautiful notes being held out, kind of like a choir. Uh-huh. I wrote Angel Choir with a question mark. mark. Because yeah. I could hear this beautiful sound coming out. And I almost did not tell the guys about it the next day. I mean, really, I mean, hours of buying them. What should I tell them what I heard? And so I finally, I don't know what. Well, why would that, that strikes me? It was weird. too weird. I mean, the whole subject's weird, so why would that be weird? <laughs> so that's, my point, that's my point, though. That's my point. That's your biology mind. It's <laughs> too far. That's, that's exactly my point, though, is that everything that I have personally have heard about or heard attributed to these animals that I just couldn't get past. It's like, no, that's just too incredible. Every one of those things has, All turned, of it. has turned out to be extremely plausible, if not factual. There's well, there's the only thing that makes me feel good about it is that since then, we've had several uh, other there situations. There were people before then that heard it as well. 
Travis and Todd heard it the first in 2011. We, we heard it this year, too. And we heard yeah. it this year. We heard the singing. Well, yeah, it's just weird stuff. It's just you know? weird. Um, just weird. Well, I've never we, heard that. I'd, I'd like to hear it. Before we move on, I, I, I've never heard them either. I've never heard To kind of close this, this uh, question up, the other thing that really kind of rattles my cage is that's a good way to put it. Is the Volkswagen Boulder. I've toss. heard that a number of times. The, yes. When I've heard it twice now, and and there was one, it was in the middle of the day, and it was just upstream, and it sounded like a an eighteen wheeler driving off a cliff, and and impacting on boulders. It was the most incredible, yeah. earth shattering sound. And it echoed, and you could feel it. Yeah, it was just incredible. And, that, and, and that, the reason we call it the Volkswagen is because that's what Travis Travis Lawrence right. coined that after he heard it. He said it sounds just like somebody taking a Volkswagen and dropping it off a ledge onto a rocky creek bottom. Right. Well, and it's important to point out that there aren't sheer cliffs. No, it's not things falling off the mountain. And it's not like a, a large boulder somehow dislodged because of geology or whatever. Yeah. And it tumbles and rolls. This is like a, a loud impact of something being tossed and landing. Right. And it just, yeah, when you hear it, it's very unsettling. And it's almost spontaneous. I mean, it happens very quickly, and then it's over in five seconds. Right. And, and it echoes for ten. Yeah, but yeah. Well, we still got more weird stories, though. I still think one of the, for me, one of the weird ones was, you were there, Paul, I don't think Cal was there, you were there, was Bright Eyes. Yeah. Yeah, we were sitting around, Daryl, you had a shotgun in your lap, nobody else had any rifle. Well, we weren't actively ever thinking of coming into camp. You, you were just, you were still unloading your gear. Yeah, I just finished unloading my gears about 9.30, 9.45 at night, little trick of firelight. We were all talking. But if you remember, I kept saying, I smell an eight from, from my the face. From the west. You were facing south. I was facing north. Right. Paul was on the east side facing west. Facing west. But I wasn't well, paying attention to no. Whatever the, the breeze. The fox had been coming in and out of camp. Yeah, it didn't run and all so around. I just kind of, you know, that's why I didn't see it because I blew it off. I but whenever the breeze would settle, I would get this whiff. Anyways, we're sitting there for like an hour. And then Daryl goes, you guys see those green eyes? Paul said, that's just that fox. Yeah, and then we I, all... I didn't even look up. We all looked... You looked away. Kind of behind your little ATV there. And me and Daryl at almost the same time clicked on the little lights on our hat, which don't put out much light. Headlamps. The headlamps, you know, on your on your, on your hat. Mine was in the hat, so that's even less... Yeah, fun. those suck. And I'll, you know, I'll remember these two big green glowing eyes, fluorescent type, like almost like... Absolutely. The color of a night vision. We stood up and then... It's hmm. sitting right there about three and a half foot... And as soon as we turned our lights on, the thing went straight up into the air to about eight and a half foot. Yeah, you know? yeah. And then started walking towards the mountain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you go, that's a Sasquatch, you son of a... And you went after it. I went to grab my Q-beam. And this thing was up that 45-degree yeah, slope, think, halfway up that mountain before we could you, even get you to the You got the Q-beam, that's when we lit it up again. We saw yeah, it. Yeah, poked his head around yeah. the... Yeah, tree. I took off on your heels because I thought, well, whatever I just missed, I'm not going to miss anymore. So right. I was right on Daryl's heels, and we went, we went what, 40, 50 yards? Then well, we get a rock that. throw from the other direction. Yeah, and then from the other direction. To pull us back away from that. Yes. And then when we go for the second one, the old one of the mountains starts throwing rocks at us. And I said, I said, now do you believe it, Paul? <laughs> yeah, that was another <laughs> And then you remember what happened when it, it was all said and done. You know, we knew they were gone. We couldn't chase them on the mountain. Right. They were up there so fast. And then we were all sitting down, just in amazement. Boom! Big rock. A huge yeah. rock hits that yeah. shit. Yeah. Crazy. Because this is why this is weird. Two reasons. Number one is when we went after one, a second one 
saw what was going on and started throwing rocks at right. us to distract us. Right. And then when we went for the second one, the first one did it. Yeah. And the other reason I find it strange is because this guy snuck up on us. Yeah. 20, 25 yards. Just, you know, what, eight yards back into the brush? Yeah. In a little depression. Never heard him come up. Right. And he's sitting watching us there right. for, I was smelling something for 30, 40 minutes. And you know what? There. He never once, mind spoke to us. That, that's he true never too. zapped he us. I, he I don't remember Ken. I don't remember Paul. I don't remember Rick lying down on the ground like frying pieces <laughs> of bacon being zapped. <laughs> I don't remember any of that happening. No. You know, there was no loss of time. There was no uh, none of that. He just walked away. He knew he was busted, yeah, yeah. and he left. Yeah. All right. Any other quickly? Any other incidences of high weirdness? Oh, we, we could go, we go on all night. We could go on forever. <laughs> all right. Well, let's move on. Okay. Well, <laughs> next, I want to talk about uh, how have your friends and family uh, reacted to your interest and, and involvement in this endeavor of ours? I haven't really had any problem with it, uh, even at work. You know, I I did have a pastor come to uh, Mid America and check in on me one time and ask about. He was concerned. I'm not sure what he was concerned about, but he uh, he asked me, you know, what was up with all the Bigfoot stuff, and I told him it's just an undiscovered primate. It's just a, a species of ape that hasn't been documented by science yet. Or what ape? When I told him that, it was like, oh, really? That's all it is. I've run into that before with people that have really strong faith. Some people seem to have some sort of conflict about this thing and their faith. I'm not real sure what the concern is. Maybe it has to do with theory of evolution in their mind or something. But at the beginning of one of my presentations at Jefferson, when we were doing the Texas Bigfoot Conference down there, at the beginning of, the, of my comments, I said something about how, um, from a Christian perspective, you know, you shouldn't have any fears about studying the subject or whatever. I can't remember exactly what I said. But in the years since then, I've had at least three different pastors that were there that have contacted me and said how much they appreciated my comments along those lines because they had an interest in the subject, but they were getting some heat, I guess, from some of their uh, congregation. And, you know, what when I told them that, you know, there was there was no conflict between, you know, uh, researching the subject and and, uh, and faith that that relieved their concerns a lot. I think I think some of this may stem from all the documentaries of the 1970s uh, that, that discussed. You, you hear the, the the blurb of well, is this the missing link? You know, and I think that term, which is kind of a misnomer in itself, in regards to proto-humans and, and and hominin and what what have you. I think people don't understand that, but when they they've attached that moniker to this phenomenon, mm -hmm. that this animal is somehow some sort of a bridge between us and monkeys or something. Mm -hmm. And so I, that's the only thing I can gather about the religious, any kind of religious discrepancies for some folks. I think it's an interesting subject matter for, honestly, this is a personal uh, thought, but I think that if somebody who thinks that this might challenge their faith, I think clearly they have issues of faith. Well, either that or they're just ignorant. That's, and I don't mean that to in a negative way. I mean, they just that there's some holes in their knowledge. If your faith yeah, is so okay. shallow and, and on fragile ground that, that something like this could sure. completely destroy and shatter the, the sure. framework and basis of the foundation of your own faith, then maybe you have a faith problem, yeah. not, a, not a monkey maybe problem so. or maybe an so. problem. So. Well, I mean, there's people with faith that can't um, come to terms with just evolution. Right. That's right. That's a big issue. Many, many people. So if we, you know, when we discover this animal, and especially if there's a lot of its characteristics are similar to us, that's going to freak people out. Yeah, I gave a presentation one time. Um, part of the presentation is 
talk about Gigantopithecus. Gigantopithecus supposedly went extinct, you know, 150, 200,000 years ago. And, Which isn't a long time ago. Yeah, but I have a gentleman come up to me afterwards, and he says to me, the Earth's only 10,000 years old, and I can prove it to you. And I said, I'm not interested. As far as problems from uh, family from war, and you know, I haven't had any problems from family, but uh, I remember I was invited to speak at a conference, maybe it was the uh, 2003 International Bigfoot Symposium in Willow Creek, and I had to have permission to go to that. So I went to uh, Vice President for Academic Affairs, and he said, I don't have a problem with it, but maybe we need to check with the President. So we went to the President and said, I don't have a problem with it, but maybe we need to check with the board. <laughs> and so he contacted some of the board at Mid-America that had higher education you know, connections or were involved with uh, higher education. And uh, they all said, you know, we think it's a very interesting subject and we don't have any problems with it. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, that's it's awesome. So I never had any problems at work. I mean, I, I don't learn it out to everyone I meet about it. Um, my wife says, if you've seen it, then I believe you. Um, you know, my in-laws are kind of indifferent. They always say, well, well, why don't you just leave them alone then? My mom says the same thing. Well, why do you want to get one? Why do you want a specimen? They don't understand the science part of it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I have friends who are close to me and are intelligent guys, and, and they give me all the time. Yeah. And, and they're smart guys, and they'll have honest conversations about it. Yeah. And say, yeah, you know, I mean, I believe you, and I think it's possible, but, haha, Kenny sees Bigfoot. <laughs> That's what they always say every time I see them. Yeah. They're probably the you know first I mean? ones to ask you uh, what happened though when you when you come back from. Uh, some of them are actually. Some or when a new are. when a new video pops up in the media, what happens? Your phone, what do you think? What do you your think? Your phone blows oh, yeah. up, and all your skeptical friends yeah. are calling. They're the first people to call you and say, "Is this real?" Right. Is this, is this every real? time there's a hoax video yeah. or some video, I get a text like, "Hey, look," you know. Yeah. I'm like, "Oh yeah," you know. It's usually like already six months down the road where we all know it's already fake, you know. I've had a, I've actually had a couple of couple of buddies of mine that either were extremely skeptical or had no it wasn't even on their radar or they just thought oh that's just some myth that's been popularized in, in culture and when they found out about my interest and my involvement of course I got the the, the usual ribbing and, and jokes but then once they listened to me talk and speak about it and offer some facts and some some knowledge that we've we've learned over the years they realized how serious and fervent. I was about this, and that alone piqued their interest. And you know, I guess my level of credibility in their eyes, once they realized that I was applying that same level of, of integrity and, and and credibility to this this subject matter, that alone made them think, hey, this might be something that merits further investigation on my part. And so they've kind of come around. A couple of them, have, which I thought was interesting. Well, my wife is my biggest supporter. My mother and father are right there with her. I mean, very supportive. Uh, got a, got a couple. I got a sister. She's very supportive, and um, the rest of the family is just a little bit indifferent about it. And uh, at work, nobody brings it up. Nobody talks about it. It's sort of a hush hush sort of thing, you know. But I do. I mean, I do presentations. I've got some friends who are interested, and in they, you know, uh, sometimes friends will tell me they think it's cool. But for the most part, people don't say much. You know, I've, I've taken some really had some that reacted in a hostile way over it for whatever reason. But I don't really give a rat's rear, you know, just keep doing what I'm doing. But you're trying to make money off this, aren't you, Daryl? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, oh, yeah. I, how many thousands of dollars have I spent? How many tens of thousands of dollars it's ridiculous. over the last 15 years have I spent? And I'm trying to win the Bigfoot lottery. Oh, that makes so much sense, doesn't it? 
literally, I have over 30 grand in equipment. And half of the most of that is in optic, in thermal and, and night vision optics. Um, but you, you factor in vacations that you've taken, you know, lost time for family. How about the trip? wear and tear on your vehicle? Oh my gosh, flat tires. Your vehicles are going to be torn up in here. Trailers. I've, I've blown two, two tires on a trailer. Uh, well, a lot of the guys, they, the vehicles they have, the four wheel drives they have, they purchased. Specifically because right. of this. Yeah, That's I why did. I have the truck that I have. That's why I have <laughs> because of this. And those new four wheel drive trucks are not inexpensive. Forty, fifty thousand dollars. People ask you, why why is your truck gonna be lifted like this? Well for hunting. It's rough roads. Just don't tell them it's hunting Sasquatch. Yeah. Yeah. Well even though you like, have to have it to get in there. For, you know. for me, like in, in doing all this research for my thesis. I'm coming across all these these databases and, and uh, trying to get periodicals and, and papers. Yeah, subscribe. And a lot of them you have yeah. to you have to subscribe and you have to get permission. And you have to pay. Someone's got to pay for it, whether it's me or the university. And our monograph is free. Yeah, we don't we're not charging for the monograph. That's we true. can easily bind that sucker up. And Four years and, of work, thousands of thousands we've never monetized. Of we've never monetized anything. What was it? Higgins, do we, do we advertise on our website? No, no, no. Why? We're a nonprofit. Right. We don't need to make any money. Yeah, Higgins said something the other day about some idiot who who claims that we've got a new we've got a new podcast coming out and uh, you know, it'd be interesting to see if we quote monetize from the podcast. Give me a freaking break. You mean <laughs> no. Well that's just as silly as is the people who say that uh, we we make money on tax write offs because we're a nonprofit. I just it's ridiculous. It's what it is. Okay, I'm just going to call for what it is. So it Literally, yeah. as a surgeon, as much money as I make, the 200 bucks I might get in a write-off for the trips I make, yeah, you know, yeah. is that much worth it? Really? Yeah, exactly. I mean, let's let's be clear. There are people that think we don't have jobs and we just run around and, and just go out yeah. in the woods. There, there are people that, that have books to sell and, yes. and they have uh, lectures those that are, they By the way, those that. are the people. Or camping trips. Or expedition. Pay to, pay to play. Do you think yes. anybody listening to this knows who you are, Paul? I don't. I don't know who I am. They might no. know Alvin and Daryl. Oh well, yeah, we're we're nobodies. But, but I bet you they know a lot of those people who are out there selling books, doing long That's how they, that's how they stuff, sell right? their product. We don't do that stuff. We could easily do that, but we don't. Even as a group, we don't go to those speaker conferences very much. A few people may if they're asked to, but it's not because they're making money. And here, here's the crazy thing about it is that, and I'm not putting down anyone's work. I mean, especially if they're, if they're just relaying stories and lore, and uh, I get that. We're not doing that. We're actually talking about our experiences that we're we're trying to gather data. We're trying to gather information. We're compiling times and, and dates and the temperature. We're, we're trying to literally bring a scientific approach. Right. To our observations, not just saying, "Ooh, I saw some eyes." You know, and, and, and why do we do the monograph? Or why do we do this podcast? Well, it's to help. It's to help so, so other people can hear about the observations we've had. Let's educate the public. If someone else brings in an ape, we're done. We're happy. Oh, absolutely. It doesn't have to be us. Please. I can care less. I wish somebody would. Do it. <laughs> so I wish somebody would. Get with a truck. Absolutely. Yeah. Do something. When we get new members in the group, I try to make a point of telling all the new members the same little thing. I said, I can only guarantee you three things. If you join the NAWAC, three guarantees. You'll meet interesting people, you'll learn a lot, and you'll spend a bunch of money. Yes. And you're not going to make any. 
No, no it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, it's, it's I mean, so if I would, it is. you know what? All of us have like a profession that we're in because we want to make money in our profession. Why would we want to make money off of this? There was, there's so many other things that you can make well, money off of. Yeah. Compared to the rest of the world, they, they think we're all crazy. So we have nothing to gain by doing any of this. Nothing. Nothing. The only, except for one caveat. The potential to bring in a specimen and, and turn science on its head—that's it. Exactly. That's, yeah. I mean, that's, that's that's what motivates me. That's what motivates me. I've seen one use. All four of us have seen one multiple times. Why wouldn't you want to prove it to the world? I think you have a responsibility. I think you have a responsibility. That's, that's what I think. Yeah, I mean, we, we you do. You have a responsibility. It's a moral imperative. If you care about the natural world, the natural world, mm -hmm. yeah, you can see. When you go into the mountains of Oklahoma or lots of parts of the country, you see what's being done in the national forest with clear cutting and all, and you realize, man, we know these apes live in a particular kind of, of an ecosystem, and they're transforming the entire landscape here with this clear cutting and monoculture uh, replacements. And Alton, you and Paul and I had a conversation earlier. What happens to an animal, a species, when it is dependent on one type of sustenance, and it's not a generalist. They go bye-bye. They go bye-bye. And so, or they adapt. So, wh where I'm going with that is, we know that these animals exist here, and we think the hickory, the walnuts, these nuts seem to drive a large part, part of their diet. How do you know they eat nuts? Well, we found nut crushing stations. Yeah, four of them. We were driving out one day, and he was just looking out the window, he's like, stop, stop, stop. And they're, you know, big rock. Big rock. Flat top rock, and... It had several stones several, like... Stones that bigger than you could fit in one of our hands, you know, but you could pick it up. And underneath the rock, there's hickory nuts that yeah, crushed. crushed. Yeah. And so we found that several times mm -hmm. in this area. At so, least a half dozen, at least. Yeah. So, you know, we think there's stations that yeah. they sit down and they yeah, crush the hickory. Yeah, chips, yeah, chips, chips, chips go to war over valley. That's what they do. They go to war. So I have a hard time understanding, or not understanding rather, why. This type of thing doesn't just titillate the public. Why? Why? It's because it's got the stigma of the monster, and it's just it's you know the hoaxes that people do. I mean, the ones that talk about mind speak and all that, and that's why because it's all that's attached to the subject, and so people just you know they can't buy into it. I mean, they're so deluded. You 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 encounter something like this way way back in the woods, off the beaten trail, off we're talking 30, 40 miles from the nearest house or or hamlet or town. And you encounter this, what literally appears to be a nut-cracking station where some animal has come in and cracked hickory nuts with a rock multiple times over and over again. And bears don't do that. Bears can't do that. So there's nothing. The general public should be asking themselves, well, what is that? What, what, how many people have actually read our monograph? Not that many. No. Yeah, but our purpose wasn't so much to convince the kooks out there. I mean, we're trying right. to pierce through the darkness sure. and hopefully, you said titillate, hopefully, you know, get the attention of some scientists right. that are out there. Right. Exactly. And we've had, some, we've had some success. Yes, we have. You know, we, we brought in some uh, some scientists and biologists and uh, became aware of, of our organization through through our efforts. And, and so, you know, we've succeeded in small part, at least. Yeah, yeah. In 91, when I came home from Desert Storm, I'd had some conversations over there with some friends, one of which is from this general vicinity, and he grew up hearing stories on his family land. And that's what that's what kind of reinvigorated my interest because it took it out of the, the monster realm into the rational. There's nothing irrational, really, 
about this phenomenon, if you really stop and think about it. Some of the things are weird. The vocalizations are weird, but there's obviously some type of a scientific explanation as to how they can do that. And when you start talking about rational things, I mean, I, I can get behind that. And that's, well, that's what the monograph does. It takes behaviors we've seen and relates it to the only other thing we can, which is other primate activity. And, and there's evidence of other primates doing much of what we've observed. Yeah. Ergo, why we think they are nothing but a grade A. Probably something like Gigantopithecus, never went extinct. I want to hear about Blackie, the one that you call Blackie. Can you tell us about that right quick? <coughs> You're siding here. Yeah, so we um, we had a uh, spot called OB1. Yeah, observation post. So it was just an observation post, and we had an area that we'd set some ghost blinds up, which are mirrors that surround you, essentially. The reason we chose that spot is because in this forest, there's no shooting lanes. So the only shooting lane we really have is down a creek. Well, Big Mac had had a siding there well, we had the previous year. That's right. I think we had a couple there. And then I had the old gray siding the week before. You had your siding the same spot I was Yeah, at. exactly. See, I'd forgotten those two were so close. Big Mac, he was right there. That's where. That's why we put OP there, OP1 there, which is so, the Big Mac siding. That's right. And so, like, within, I, I don't even think it was a week. I think it was more like four days before. It was, because I saw old gray on Thursday, and you saw that's black right. on Sunday. Right. Yeah. So, you had seen old gray, which is a big gray one that yeah. looked like looked like Patty. How, how much did that thing weigh? 800, 850 pounds, 900. I mean, how tall? Eight feet at least. Yeah. So you massive. saw a big thick end? It was massive. And it was slate gray, like a jackrabbit. Gray, with, with some white, with blue area. The feet had a light color. Everything else was gray. I mean, it was just gray from top to bottom. So we used those two observations, and I just repeated what Daryl did. And I sat there for about six, six and a half hours. In a ghost blind. Yeah. In, a, in a ghost blind, in a ghillie suit. With the rifle, 30 out, I think it was 30 out six, six with a scope, nine power scope. Nine power scope. I sat there all day, all of <laughs> six hours in the hot sun by myself. It was 5:45 because I had I had a GoPro on my head, so yeah. I know the times. I had my watch on the ground, so every now and then I'd look at my watch, I could document the time. And at 5:45, a wood ape, whoop, yeah, like that, whoop, yeah, but loud, yeah, yeah, I mean loud, right? And it was no more than you know, within 50 yards. I mean, I can't tell exactly, but I mean, this was to my dead six, and I'm like, oh my God, there's one behind me. <laughs> so I slowly turn, and now I'm focused there. You know, and we're going to stand up, you're going to give me a shot, but you can't really see there. That's why I'm not looking that behind. Yeah, it was so dense behind there. Because it's yeah. so dense, you might have 20 yards. Right. And to my left, you might have 20 yards, and to my right, you might have 20 yards. That's why we're looking down the creek. And I west. got about 80 yards down the creek, mm -hmm. unobstructed view. Well, I hear something, you know, the one that went behind me, I hear movement. And I think it goes off and walks away to my left. Because I'm hearing something off to my left. But it's faint and every so often. Then I start hearing some rocks up in the creek. And that drew my attention in front of me. To the west. And up on the bank, you know, there's trees all along the bank. Yeah, right. But if you can picture in your head two pine trees that are on the bank, probably six or eight foot apart. Yeah. So I see this black Sasquatch step out from behind one of the trees, and he does a sidestep. I saw yeah. his left leg come out and then pull the rest of his body. And so it, 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 it I assume, crossed the creek. 
Because right as you think it, that's what you heard. Well, the reason I can only see oh, 80 oh. yards was because the creek bent. Bends. And you hear this rock sound, so, and you look, and now you see right. it. Got it. So where okay. the bend is, there's forest. Okay. So he steps out to the left. So you thought it had just crossed the creek, and that's what made the sound. I think he crossed the, the creek and came up on oh, the bank. Oh, okay. And then when he stepped out, he's looking right down the creek. And then I, you know, and I have a GoPro in my head. So I'm, I'm dictating now. I'm like, who is that? That's, that's not my, that's not our guys. Because the guys that are out in the field, you know, or in, you know, with us are, are they're big boys. But they're not dressed head to toe in black. No, they're in camos. It's not and, a wooden ninja. You know, they're just wearing, you know, camel pants and a camel t-shirt and right. a cap. But I'm looking at this thing's jet black. Mm-hmm. And what I remember about it is it was slender. Yeah. I used the term almost lanky. But its shoulders were so broad that its chest down its waist was like a V. V taper. Yeah, a yeah. V taper. And then his arms hung straight down, just straight down. So you could see the space between his arms. I could see arms. the space between his arms and his body. So I could see the greenery <laughs> behind it. That's what was weird to me because, you know, the only other humans in that whole area were our guys. And there's, there's no space between their arms and their body. <laughs> I'll tell you that. But that's what, that's you know, but my brain's saying, who's that? Right. And the reason it is, is, it's upright. I'm there with a rifle to collect a specimen. Sure. I'm there waiting to see old Gray. I'm there waiting to see a big Patterson Gilbert film, thick, bulky Sasquatch. Right. What I see instead, what I believe, is a young male. Yeah. Who's jet black, and he's built like a bodybuilder. But, you know, but he's tall, so it makes him look lanky. And his shoulders are so wide, and it goes down to a V, that that's what makes, why I use the term lanky. His arms are straight down. One time you said that, that, that classic picture of the Legend of Boggy Creek. Legend of Boggy Creek. figure in that classic That's picture. right. Obviously, in the Legend of Boggy Creek, the poster, you know, the creature's kind of off the side. Yeah, yeah. But if you look at how the arm and the body, the yeah. space between it, yeah. that's kind of what it looked like. And it was just a matter of that his shoulders are wide. So obviously his shoulder, you know, his arm, his shoulder joints are wider out than, yeah. than would be in us. And so and his hands were straight down, so that makes the space. You know, I'm freaked out because it looks slender. And that's what I think gave me pause. And then, plus I can't believe what I'm seeing. Yeah, sure. And then he steps away. So, I mean, it's, you know. So how long was that? Probably three, maybe four seconds. He's looking down the creek. And then, he, <laughs> so he steps to the left. He looks down the creek right at me. And then he puts his left leg out and steps again. And he's behind a tree and I can't see him. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, oh, my God. Then I see the right leg come back out, and he sidesteps again in full view in between the two trees, and he's looking at me. Twice. We and did I, twice. And I remember, I remember kind of it seemed like there was a little lean forward. What do you think he's doing? He's trying to check out to see what you are? I mean, what's he doing? Well, but I felt like when he first stepped out, he was looking at me, which kind of scared me a little bit. And then when he stepped away and then stepped back again, I got the feeling like he's checking on me to make sure I'm still there almost. Now, whether or not he so was... So you think he knew you were there? I don't know. He's not looking to say, what is that I'm seeing down the creek? I, well, at the moment, this so you know I'm dictating into my GoPro and I'm like, who's that? That's not the guy's. Oh my God, it's looking at me. Does it know I'm here? Does it know I'm here? That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. So I'm thinking he knows I'm there. It's probably worth noting that it was either the day before or two days before, you and I were sitting in the same ghost blind 
That's right. And you you were on my six. You were facing you were facing upstream to the east. Right. And I was facing exactly how you were during this encounter. And I remember it, it, it's extremely there's like a wall of vegetation on the south bank. Yeah. yeah so you right. could look to your left. I could look to my left, and you just see this wall of green. That's right. And I remember you were you were blasting. Uh, Pigs in distress. Wounded. Yeah. And you called in a mountain lion. Yeah. And did you see it? I, I did, but I was wait, 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 wait. There are no mountain lions. I don't even there, there are no mountain lions in eastern Oklahoma. You know, you'll notice that the game, the the, the wildlife uh, <laughs> game wardens and whatnot in Oklahoma will say, no, we really don't have any. But if you have pictures, I'd sure like to see one. So, you know, but, but so I, and you remember we heard something. On the on the south bank that That's, day, yeah, we heard oh, yeah. movement and like yeah, heavy yeah. footfalls and whistles, and, and, yeah, and whistles. But we couldn't, would not, but we yeah. couldn't see anything because yeah. it was just a big wall yeah. of green. So we we may have been busted. Yeah, that whole OP one, I think, had been busted. And they knew we were getting in, and there's oh, bunch I see. Of us. Yeah. So anyway, so back to Blackie. Um, so he he stepped to the left, looked down the creek, and stepped left again, and then stepped back right, and looked down the creek again, and then he stepped back left. And then I raised my rifle. You're going to glass him. And I said, if he steps back out. And he's going. I'm going to do it. And, and he's going. He's going to step out. So I had maybe eight seconds. But so this goes to the thing. I was like, well, why don't you just shoot? Why don't you take a picture? Well, if I took a picture, hey, at 75, 80 yards down there. It's not going to be. It's not going to show up. Yeah. Number two, everybody's like, oh, we had a GoPro on your head. I did. And interestingly enough, that thing, the card filled up <laughs> four minutes before and the way I know that what do we call that what do we call the that Bigfoot the curse. Bigfoot curse <laughs> so I looked at my watch and it was six o'clock and this happened at 604 but the GoPro records my watch at 6 p.m. and then like seconds later it goes out and so I don't even know how that happened because I cleared those cards like an hour before and I guess I'm telling you, man, the files. It's, it's the Bigfoot curse. Yeah. But you wouldn't have been able to see anything. <laughs> yeah, you would yeah. not have been able to see that far. Yeah, right. But you would have been able to hear me dictating sight, yeah. which would have been really, right. really cool. Because now I have to rely on just my memory of events. Well, also, had you actually taken the shot, you would have been able to document that entire event. Oh, that's With your GoPro, had it been, had it been yeah. going. Which would have been fascinating. Absolutely. I also like. Well, that. we did record the wood knock, though. I mean, the wood. The, the wood knock. They the recorded yeah. the wood. Yeah, really clearly. Mm -hmm. Ken, did you go back and do a, a recreation to try to figure out how tall Blackie was? We we did, we did, and um, with Ken Stewart there, you're going to do a recreation. Yeah, we did a recreation <laughs> of those yeah, guys. I, I mean, it, it looked nothing like them. Um, you know, I estimated maybe anywhere from. You know, it's hard to tell. But, but you knew the trees, then. I, I thought six and a half, seven and a half foot, probably something yeah. like that. But it's so far down there. I mean, it's down there. But when I have the guy stand there, I know it's, it's like 80 yards. Right? Yeah. It's like at the very limit. Of well, here's the interesting thing. So was it three or four days later? Mark McClurkin is sitting in the, the next same. Friday, that following Friday. Following yes. Friday, sitting in the same place. Yeah. Long story short, the Sasquatch yeah. on two feet charges straight at him, and he turns and fires. Mostly, just, I mean, he said all he could do is fire from the hip. He was scared to death. But it got to within 10 yards of him. But on the interview afterwards, if you listen to how he describes it, it was jet black. He says yeah. black is the blackest fades, which mm -hmm. is what I saw. Yeah, yeah. Like the black on the headphones you're wearing. Mm -hmm. And he said it had a big muscular V chest. Yeah. And it was running at him with his arms in front of it, pushing all the trees and saplings aside yeah. as it was running. Yeah. yeah. And then it turned around when he, after he fired, and it ran off the same way. 
I think it was the same after. Yeah, that. I, I think, think so. That shook that shook him up. Yeah, yeah that's for a while. He he, went, he actually went through uh, some form of PTSD. Well, you know, it shook me up when I saw mine. Yeah, in the full daylight, even though I'd seen bright eyes before, and I yeah. had hundreds of rocks thrown at me and heard hundreds of wood knocks and animals running around. But seeing one during the daytime and having him look down the creek at me freaked me out. It's pretty freaky. Yeah, I would like to. I'd like to add one. The other thing too is I didn't, I didn't know if I'm. You know, I think probably the one that went behind me circled around and he was checking on me. But I also didn't know. I'll tell you what. I was thinking about the one behind me. Yeah. You know, yeah. if well, it was still there or not. Nobody there. gave you more than I did. Yeah. I was. <laughs> we are our own biggest skeptics. Absolutely. Yeah, we are our own biggest skeptics. I, I think, you know, everybody who's doing what we're trying to do, the first one you see is going to be complete failure because you're going to you're just amazed. So you, 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 your brain's like, all of a sudden, you're going from, I'm a believer to I'm a knower, and it's like, oh, my God, it really right. is. That's the way I was with the first Right, because yeah. we're all deep down still yeah. keeping our skeptical side. Yeah, sure. We're, we're trying to answer a question, right, mm -hmm. an hypothesis, that there is a upright bipedal primate in North America, right? That's a hypothesis, and you have to answer that. But until you actually see it, and then when you do, it just makes you pause. You just pause. And you're never going to be able to get that shot off. Well, boys, I'm about ready to switch from lattes to Shiner Bar. you guys have anything else you want to discuss in uh, reference to our questions today? Sawbones, Ken Helmer, and Alton and I are headed back out in the field next week, so I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, we just got to get another opportunity. Yeah, make it happen. We want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening uh, to the Coffee House Roundtable, and we look forward to the next episode. Y'all have a good one. So this is the first of what is going to be a recurring segment on Apes Among Us, and we are calling this the Encounter File. And on the Encounter File, it's going to be me and my partner here, Mike Mays. Mike Mays, can you say hello? Hello. So first, what I want to do is introduce you to the audience and sort of get a general feel for why it is we accept Encounter Reports. Can you sort of just give a general idea of what it is that people do when they submit a report and what we do to follow up on it? Uh, sure. We have a, a way for folks when, to, when they visit our website to upload details of any uh, encounters, sightings they may have. You know, and, and that's generally the way folks go about it. Uh, initially, um, they upload their, some of the details of the sighting. At that point, uh, an investigator from our group is, is assigned, and they then get in contact with any witnesses of reports that we deem credible. As you can imagine, we have to wade through quite a bit of uh, silliness to try to glean the, the reports that we think actually have a, at least a chance of being legitimate. Yeah, that's another question that I wanted to ask you is how many silly reports do we get and what sort of qualities of reports make you want to actually send an investigator out and get boots on the ground? Like, what are the qualifications of reports? Okay, um, I would say conservatively, one out of ten is one that uh, we think uh, the witness is being truthful. That doesn't mean they actually saw a wood ape, but that they're being truthful. They saw something that they didn't understand that in their mind was a wood ape, and uh, uh, we need to try to get to the bottom of it. There are some telltale kind of signs that you look for 
don't want to you know be too obvious, but you know anyone that doesn't leave a full name, anyone that doesn't leave a contact, a follow up number, anyone who contradicts himself, you know they said one thing at the beginning of the report and they kind of contradict themselves later on. Uh, these are things that uh, we look for when we're trying to uh, determine the validity of any particular sighting report. So if somebody had an encounter and they wanted to report it to us, how would they go about doing that? Well, they'd go to the website. It's just woodape.org. And up at the upper right-hand portion of the page, there's a, there's a button that says Submit an Incident Report. And then there's basically just a form to fill out the details, you know, everything from time of day, the actual date it took place, locations, a box for you to basically type in whatever you you feel like you need to as far as descriptions and exactly what happened. Everyone is not always able to fill out every single question box on the form, but uh, that's the place to start at that point. uh, And again, you leave your contact number. Uh, email address, full name, first and last. It's completely, you know, safe with us. We're not going to broadcast that, and um, and allow us to get back to you. And uh, that's kind of your first step. It's really a very intuitive and user friendly form. That's exactly what I did back in 2005 when I first got involved with the group. The very first thing I did was submit an incident report of my own. So I've been on the other side of it as well. And it's pretty easy and pretty painless and pretty quick to do. Yeah. And one thing that I wanted to mention is that we actually can take reports from many, many parts of the country. We can take reports from the Midwest. We can take it from the South. We've got members all over the country now. So if somebody out there wants to submit a report to us, they, they can they can do so, and we, we may True. put those and, on the And we can it. actually take reports from anywhere. Uh, as far as having an investigator in the region, you know, that's a different question. I think that's more what you were alluding to there. But, right. uh, but you never know. I mean, from time to time, you know, we've got friends and, you know, all over the country and uh, even the world. And so, you know, when in doubt, you know, submit that report. It just, it, it adds to the data. And you just never know what might be the the final straw that breaks this thing wide open. So this report is from Southeast Texas, Liberty County. This is report number 01120043. Honestly, this is one I actually had some some trepidation about. Initially, the gentleman was a prominent member of the community who people down there would know if his name were, were released. He preferred that not happen, but um, he um, submitted a report. He was actually walking at the track at Liberty High School. Now, that sounds like, you know, you're in the middle of some big metropolitan area. You have to realize this is East Texas. It's a, it's not a tiny little town, but neither is it some sprawling kind of metropolis type place either. And it's uh, it's right in the middle of big thicket country, you know, primitive big thicket country, uh, Lots of rivers, lots of creeks uh, going on, uh, flowing through the area. And the high school actually butts up to a heavily wooded area just to the north. And it's actually a a green belt that stretches all the way back to the Trinity River, uh, back to the east, uh, just continuously over a couple of miles. But uh, the gentleman was walking the track for exercise. He he had actually been on his cell phone uh, as he walked his laps around the track. As he came to the, um, you know, if you picture a standard track that kind of goes around a, a football practice field, coming to the uh, to the bend in the track, the the curve on the north side, 
And as he kind of was walking that and bending it back around to his left, he caught sight of a large hair-covered figure standing just outside the tree line of this green belt area that I mentioned. It was at night. It was about 1030 at night, and uh, he estimated that he was about 50 yards away. He was able to give uh, quite a bit of detail, actually. It was a it wasn't a full moon, but it was a big moon. It was bright night, and he was able to give some details on that it was very big, definitely standing on two feet, that the face was lighter in color and, and didn't appear to have the hair all over it like the rest of the body did and so forth. And he stopped there when he saw it. The figure then kind of pushed uh, some brush away with its left hand. The, the right arm swung back uh, across the body, and it walked back into this uh, this heavily wooded green belt area and was gone. There is a, uh, a fence line between he and where the figure was. Uh, and this is a report that's on our site. There's some pictures there that, that demonstrate what I'm talking about that would make it a little more clear to anyone listening. But uh, there is a cyclone fence between the track and the property the school's on and where this wooded area begins. But even so, it frightened him bad enough that he did not continue to walk around the track. He, he would have had to continue the curve, which would have brought him closer to where this figure had been. And he stopped where he was and he just went straight back down the middle of the the practice football field and back to his car in the parking lot on the opposite end of the track. As far as the sighting itself goes, that's really about it. I did, like I said, I had some concerns initially about the report. He gave what in my mind was a surprising amount of detail from someone that was 50 yards away at 1030 at night. But in talking to him on the phone, he sounded very credible, very believable. He agreed to meet us at the site. So I and a fellow member named Todd Pinkerton met the gentleman down at the track and the sighting location, and he showed us exactly where everything happened. And uh, everything was just as he described it, with one exception. Turned out he was only about 20 to 22 yards away from the figure as opposed to the 50 that he had estimated when he talked to us. You know, being that close, the details he was able to give us as to the appearance of the uh, figure made a lot more sense um, than if he had really been 50 yards away. So we felt a whole lot better about it after that. Did he give any sort of estimate to how tall the thing was? Yeah, there was actually a uh, a tree uh, that had a um, a branch that that grew out almost horizontally to the ground. It, it wasn't a very big tree or branch, but it but it was very you know, it stuck out. It was very unique to the spot there. And he said that um, the shoulder of the figure was even with this branch that kind of came out to the side. And we had uh, Todd stand in the approximate location where the figure was. And uh, about the top of Todd's head was even with the branch. Whereas if, if this gentleman was correct, it would have been the shoulder, which makes it makes whatever it was a full head taller than Todd, who is six foot one, and uh, so it was an you know a pretty tall, pretty pretty large something. It's also possible, and I, I believe I put this in the report, that the figure actually could have been a step or two closer than even we estimated, which would have made it appear maybe slightly closer to the witness and maybe not quite that big. But he, he said it was very thick, very just very big in general, and, and in his opinion, a full head taller than the one Pinkerton. Did he mention if he could see any other detail, like color of the animal or shoulder width or anything like that? 
He mentioned that uh, the impression he had was that it was kind of a reddish brown color and that the uh, the face area, he could see that the hair didn't cover the face. It was more of a grayish color. Again, though, I mean, while it was a big moon and it was bright for 1030 at night, you know, that grayish on, on skin, that could play with the color a little bit. As, so, you know, not 100% sure that the face truly was gray, but he said, you know, you could discern features, but not in any great detail from where he was. Uh, he, he really didn't embellish anything. Uh, that That's another thing we kind of look and listen for um, is almost too much detail because the sighting itself only lasted two, three seconds and uh, it walked away. Yeah, my favorite detail that he gave in the report, I think, is when he said it looked like a Star Wars Wookiee just with a different walk, with a different gait, he described mm-hmm. it as. That's, mm-hmm. that's- and that's something that we, you know, we've heard that quite a few times. I think it's just almost a universal point to start with something like this, you know, uh, just large, tall, hair-covered something. And, you know, Chewie is something everybody knows, and I think that's that's something that they uh, they often I've heard it especially when people talked about the hair on forearms from time to time, about how it looked. Uh, they've referred, they've made that same comparison. So when you and Todd were out there doing your investigation, did you see any evidence at all of this thing leaving behind any tracks, anything like that? No, we didn't. But and again, if, if uh, anyone wants to take the time to go look at this report online, you'll see the pictures and you'll see, I think, why the ground cover was was very, very thick. It was really uh, shocking in a way to be so close. We were literally a quarter of a mile from Main Street in, you know, in Liberty and, and, and just again, just behind the high school. And you had this wilderness. It, it's just, it was just really surprising and, and it was really gnarly, really thick. Lots of thorns and vines. Uh, blackberries were growing back there. We, we didn't see any kind of sign that we could definitively attribute to what this gentleman had seen. I had ducked in a game trail, was probably had walked in 10 or 15 feet and spooked three white-tailed deer that had been just kind of laying in the in the vegetation there, you know, just out of sight, just inside the wood line. So, so they were present. There was hog sign present, uh, but we didn't see any kind of track or any kind of spore that we could definitively attribute to what, what this gentleman said that he saw. But it was definitely a place that could harbor hidden wildlife if one were to go look oh, for well, it. Oh, well, there was wildlife there. I mean, we, we saw, um, and again, there are pictures of this on the site. We found some dens hollowed out in, into some vegetation, which we were assuming were coyote. There was deer sign everywhere, hog sign everywhere. There were blackberries growing all over the place. Uh, now, it, it's a fairly small, narrow area that runs parallel to a levee there in town. I don't think anything could stay there, anything of any size anyway, could stay there long term for very long. But the deer were there, the hogs were there. And matter of fact, the gentleman, he told us that um, there's kind of a clearing due north of the track. The actual wooded area, the, the green belt starts, it's a little more to the north. I guess it would be the northwest of the track. Where this thing was standing, actually, it was at the entrance slash exit of a, of a game trail. And it's a perfect place to observe anything that might be out in that open area. The witness said that on multiple nights he saw deer and or hogs grazing or rooting around in that, that more open area. And the, where this thing was would have been a really ideal spot to kind of eyeball that and, and watch for that sort of thing. 
you know, like I said, this green belt went all the way back to the Trinity River, and from there you could go almost anywhere you wanted. It, it's not too much of a stretch of the imagination to see how an animal could wander that far, literally, into town without being seen. Satellite imaging that we looked at, you know, showed that uh, that it was very thick, very contiguous, all the way back to the uh, to the Trinity River. And, and when we release this episode, we'll link up the report mm-hmm. on our show notes so people can get a general idea of where this thing was seen and just get a general feel for the area. All right, man. So on the line now via Skype, I have Alton Higgins and and uh, Daryl Collier. Say hello, guys. Hello. Hello, everybody. The theme of this show so far has been encounters. It's been uh, stories that those people have had in the group who have had either visual encounters or some sign of encounter with what they believe to be wood apes. And and I, I, I think that uh, as Brendan and I were talking at the top of the show, it seems fitting to end a conversation about encounters with a talk about the monograph because encounters are they're just you know they're little pieces of data they're they're just stories but if you if you focus your attention on them and you and you actually try to collect data about these encounters you can actually turn that into a, a document you can turn that into some sort of uh, conversation that, that actually has a little more value to it is that where the monograph came from yeah, it was, you know, after we had been doing these summer projects for four consecutive years. And, uh, you know, I, I just thought that it was time to put something down on paper about all this because we had a ton of stuff we needed to report. So I got with, uh, you know, with Alton, got with you, Brian, some others in the organization and said, well, what do y'all think? Well, you know, why don't we, why don't we write a paper? We had sort of started the process with some uh, presentations at uh, the conference. I remember Brian gave mm-hmm. a presentation where a lot of the information that we kind of dug out of our experiences were, were organized and presented. So that was kind of the beginning steps, I think. Yeah, I think so. But when I first brought that idea up, there it wasn't a whole lot of enthusiasm, really. And I just said, well, you know, I'll just start writing on this and, and then we'll we'll pass it around and we'll see what happens. And so I started writing into it and Brian really got into it right from the start. Brian said, yeah, this is great. Let's go with it. I thought it was and, great that you were writing it, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Brian said, uh, yeah, so this is this is great. Let's keep going. Alton was a little more standoffish about it. He's like, we don't have any hard evidence here. There's We don't have a specimen. What are we going to say in this paper? And I, I said, well, we're just going to present what we have. We're sitting on a ton of information here that we need to document, and this paper would be the means by which we would document it. I started working on it, and um, so Alton and some others started contributing, and it just became this big team effort. The whole idea was just to make everybody aware of what's going on. And we, we realized that there would be a lot of criticism. People would, you know, they couldn't, they wouldn't be able to believe it. We knew that. At least from, in my mind, from the start, it was just a way of raising our hand and saying, look, we've got something here. Of course, we don't have a specimen. We don't have that, but we've got a lot of data that we've collected and we need to, we need to release this. We need to get it out and, and hopefully garner the attention of others who, you know, who could help with this. I think we've been somewhat successful in that and that we've gained some individuals into the organization, biologists and that sort of thing. I think from that standpoint, it's been a success. Well, Daryl definitely deserves full credit for being the driving force behind this thing. And he really was the perfect person because more than anyone I think I've ever met, Daryl has some kind of crazy total recall and 
We have, Daryl, would you say hundreds and hundreds of pages of documentation of our teams and their efforts over the last few years? And there's nobody that has uh, the knowledge of, of all that information uh, like what you do. I was I was actually joking um, uh, with some other people in the group a couple of days ago about how I can't remember the names of any of the operations or, or anything like that. I don't have to. <laughs> I, I can just ask Daryl and he'll tell me any tiny bit of, of ephemera that I've forgotten. He will <laughs> quote it to me, you know, chapter and verse. Dates, weather at the time. <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. Just everything. It, it, is, it is pretty amazing. So anyway, he got started with it and then he started throwing chunks of it at me and and said, you know, look this over and change whatever you want to change and throw it back at me. And so that's kind of the process that we went through for seemed like a few months. Yeah, every 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 person that's listed as an author of the paper contributed in some major way to the final product, either by writing an entire section or uh, helping to write multiple sections. Alton was really a true co-author throughout the entire monograph. Brian wrote some, but his major part was more like an executive editor and proofreader of the whole thing. And then uh, the others, uh, you know, Kathy and Mike and, and McAndrews, they, uh, you know, they contributed whole sections or chapters and that sort of thing. So it was, it was a really, it was a really great team effort. But, you know, it's, uh, I don't think we ever intended for it to be as long as it was. But um, <laughs> again, I, I, you know, I just think that it was very important for us to, to get that out there. And, and now I'm very, very glad that we did because we're on the record now regarding what we've done. So if and when, and uh, actually the emphasis is on when this uh, species is brought uh, into the light of the world, we're on the record in what we've done and, and the things that we've tried and the things we've documented. You know, what got me excited uh, very relatively early on when I started seeing the, the first drafts of what you're putting together, and, and as someone who who was tasked for a while with being engaged with the quote-unquote community and and helping to explain the sorts of things that we had had experiences with and, and where our hypotheses were coming from, it's almost a forest for the trees kind of thing, where like you're, you're in the forest all the time, and then you start seeing somebody drawing a picture of the forest from what it looks like on the outside, and then you're like, oh yeah, you know, when they... There's actually like we have quite a bit of data and it just became very exciting to me to be able to see all of that sort of laid out in, in a logical way. Um, all of the podcasts that I had done and all of the other sorts of writings on this that I had done and, and even the presentation that, that Daryl, you and I created for, for the conferences, um, they didn't they just sort of scratched the surface. And and this was just such a great organization of everything, all of these years and years of, of experiences and and this is where I think it sort of raises beyond, you know, just the, these aren't just random stories. Um, oh, I had a rock thrown at me one night. You know, when, when you do a, 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 when you make an effort to document those things over the course of a week and then over you know, the next team does it over two weeks and then pretty soon you've got a month or two months. And the next thing you know, you've got three or four years. That's that seems to me to be data, not anecdote. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it is. It absolutely is data. Sorry. And, you know, we, we have, uh, I mean, we have our share of detractors and, and critics, totally understandable. I mean, if I were not, if I were not here in, in, the, in the middle of this and I were on the outside looking in, I mean, I, my eyebrows would be raised. You know, I would find it very interesting, no doubt. You know, there's a lot of things that happened that we documented that are, shoot, man, even if you're there, it's, it's still tough for you to grasp. You know, it's difficult for you to understand and, and believe so I, you know, I can understand, and, and particularly for someone who has no knowledge whatsoever that the species is real. I mean, I'm talking about a person who's, you know, really, really skeptical about it. Well, sure, man, they're they're just not going to buy into it at all. 
because yeah. it's a, it's a lot. I mean, it's a big, huge honking bike we're asking people to take. It's just a lot there, and I understand that, and it, it doesn't that doesn't bother me. Now, what what does bother me is just when people don't read it and, and criticize it. That's one thing that bothers me. We read the whole thing, then you then you can you know then you I think you you have a have a right to criticize if you want to. Uh, can you explain why it was decided to just release it for free? At some point, we had discussed. I don't know if we discussed. Um selling access to the paper, but we had discussed selling like a bound version of it or, or something along those lines. And, and I think that there is, especially when it comes to this particular subject matter, uh, you know, North American wood apes, there is an awful lot of folks in the field who are, I don't know if they're in it for the profit, because I don't know exactly how much profit there is to be to be had, but they, they seem to be in it to to make a buck or turn a buck or try to to, to raise a few a few cents off the backs of people who are um, similarly inclined to believe in this sort of thing. And, and I think that we've always been very careful trying to to put forward a like we're, not, we're trying not to, to look like that's what we're in this for. You know, to me, if you want to make money, there are a whole whole litany of other things that are far uh, more lucrative. We could sell than, tours. Than, than, huh? We could sell tours. We could, we could do as, as, as other groups have done. We could we could uh, sell access to. Uh, to campouts in in the woods, we can just bring people to uh, the Wachitas. Yeah, I mean, I I'm just saying there there's so many other things outside of Bigfoot that oh well, that's person could make, <laughs> in which a person could make money. I mean, this is just like this would be at the you know this would be like the ten thousandth thing or fifteen thousandth thing right. at the bottom of my list <laughs> of endeavors to you know in which to make money. It's hard to find a, a group or organization out there that that hasn't you know ventured into the uh, arena of you know charging for for their publications or for trips with them. And maybe there is money to be made there. I, I don't know, but like Brian indicated, we've we have bent over backwards from the beginning to avoid any appearance of of trying to uh, profit from this thing, you know, to to uh, to question our motives in this. Our motives are not financial. Our motives are strictly scientific. As yeah. difficult as that is to believe for some people, that's, you, that's it. Yeah. It's you, bottom even, line. even the production of this podcast, one of the uh, comments that was put out there on the interweb uh, was that we were, this was step one in monetization. And I'm thinking step one in monetization. <laughs> I mean, there's like, yeah, right. We, we've got Whatever. a long way to go before yeah, we this can is make step a one. profit. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, yeah. We'd be better That's off tough. selling lemonade. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and also I, I think That's going back to what you said about our, our mission, our mission is to, to spread as much information about this animal as we can. And, and I know, for example, um, if, if we had put it behind a paywall, I doubt we would have had, um, some of the very individuals you were talking about, Daryl, who who became engaged with us. Um, I'm thinking about Angelo Caparelli as an example. I don't know that he would have ponied up the ten or twenty or however many you know mythical Bigfoot dollars we're we're talking about. That we would have charged for this thing, but but I think that that we've we've benefited as an organization so much by the contacts we've made following the publication sure. of this thing. John Perry Absolutely. and Caparella, those are two biologists that joined the organization as a result of the monograph. And have made significant uh, and contributions in our work. In fact, absolutely. we'll be talking in a, in a future episode, we'll be talking a lot about uh, one of the leads that John Perry put us on. Yep. I would go so far as to say John Perry uh, changed the course of our field work significantly. Um, made a significant contribution, which, which significantly altered the course we were on. I think what you're referring to, Daryl, there is the uh, is is his suggestion that we try to employ radio attack technology 
And mm-hmm. uh, yeah. our, our next episode is going to be all about that crazy endeavor and, and the amazing things that happened once we tried to put that in the field. But I think that's mm-hmm. an excellent point. And it really show goes to show how this group works in that we build on previous success. Everything is an evolution. If we had not written the, the monograph, uh, we would not have come to the attention of John. And if we hadn't come to the attention of John, he wouldn't have talked about radio tags and we wouldn't have tried to figure out a way to deploy them and so on and so forth. And you can follow this all the way back. I mean, this is this is how the group has worked forever, as far as I know. Daryl, over the course of producing it, were there any individual insights that came about as when you were putting together the data that, that surprised you that you were that you did not expect, or uh, were you just really just sort of knocking down all the things you wanted to to say that that's been sitting out there in our data for all these years? You know, I don't know that anything really surprised me other than maybe just the volume of the data. And and it's, you know, that's why the thing ended up being over 200 pages long, I guess, because it was so voluminous in terms of data. After I looked at it and after we'd completed it and I read it, uh, I read it a couple of times after we completed it. And I just thought, my goodness, man, this is compelling information. One of the criticisms that I've heard uh, said is that it's, it seems repetitive, but that's almost the point. I mean, the, the repetitive nature of it is that we're talking about for example, uh, rock throws, rocks hitting the cabin as a sort of subset of rock throws. That happened so many times. <laughs> and then you wanted to talk about all of the various ways that that happened. And, and even though it seems repetitive, all of them aren't in there. You could have. Well, that's science. Right. Yeah. That's science. I mean, these things were these things were repeated. And, yeah, uh, the baseline of science is observation. And just uh, what we actually put in the monograph is just a fragment of what actually occurred. Right. Uh, that's that, you know, chew on that for a minute because, you know, you, you can look at the thing and you can see that it's 200 and something pages long, but I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's not in there too much space. I mean, it just would have taken up way too much uh, space and, and it, it would have made the thing six or 700 pages. We could have put every after action report from every team in there. There's so many things that occurred that just aren't in there. I, I would have to say that most of the major events, I, I, I think most, almost all of the major things that happened are in there. Tried to make sure mm-hmm. those got in there. Absolutely. But there are a lot of other things that, that maybe we wouldn't consider to be one of the major events, but were still significant. I think the other thing that, that strikes me about it is that, um, one of, again, one of the common criticisms is that we're being hoaxed, that, that there's quote-unquote hillbillies or rednecks up on the mountaintop throwing things down at us or whatever. And when you, if you sit and read the monograph, if you look at it for what it is, you understand that you're talking about a scope and a scale that is just outside the realm of possibility. That if we have to put forward a great deal of effort to put ourselves there for as long as we have, as many times as we have, it's not, it's, it's unfathomable to imagine the, the effort required to be on the other side of the rock if you're a human to hoax us. That, that's, that's beyond comprehension. Yeah. We uh, we now have our camp. Uh, we're no longer at the cabin we used to stay at. We were visited recently by uh, Forest Service law enforcement, and they just wanted to know what we were doing. And you know, it was just a pretty benign visit. And um, you know, our guys. I wasn't there, but our guys told them what we were doing, and they thought it was interesting. And one of our guys said, "Yeah, we've had you know lots of rock throws at, at our camp and that sort of thing." And the federal agent just said, "Yeah, well, you know, it's not people back in here. This is too remote." Mm-hmm. You know, and that's from a federal agent who works that entire area. He, you know, works. He knows it like the back of his hand, and he, he knows what kind of effort it took for him to get back there to our camp. Right. And and the only reason he knew about it was because of a helicopter reconnaissance. 
that had been conducted. Right. I, mean, I suppose they're looking for they're looking for pot grow farms and that sort of thing. And they they saw our camp in there and they just wanted to you know because it was very very remote. They wanted to check it out. So about three or four days after the helicopter uh, buzzed our camp, three guys rolled into you know uh, law enforcement officers rolled into camp and they just very polite, very professional, wanted to know what what we were doing and our guys told them. So but let, yeah, I mean that to be a lesson to you if you're a pot grower, you have 48 hours to get out of camp. <laughs> from the moment the helicopter buzzes you. Um, well, what's next? What's next with the uh, with the, with the group's efforts? What else are we going to be? Are we going to be adding to the the OPM at any point? Or are we going to be writing a sequel? Well, that's a good question. I mean, we've on our list of to dos, we've got a, another paper which uh, deals specifically with uh, with the radio tracking telemetry that we uh, collected over the last year. I think that was probably the next thing to be written by us. Uh, I don't know when it'll even be finished or when it will be released, but we've got so much going on. But Alton, you see anything else? We haven't really talked about doing an update on the document itself. Um, I'm kind of thinking we'll probably do more freestanding publications uh, rather than continually expanding this. You know, Brian, you said earlier something about any other points to be made about the monograph. And my, my thoughts turn to the uh, discussion section that starts on page 150. In that discussion section, we kind of sat back, and, and even as we were putting this together, we, we really did a lot of reflecting. What does all this really mean in terms of frequency of visual contact? I'm just kind of flipping through some of the, uh, the sections here in that uh, discussion, part of the uh, monograph, camera trap avoidance. And it's here where we try to uh, compare the kinds of things that, that we'd observed and written about and then place that in a context with uh, what other scientists had, had noted with regard to, uh, you know, like odor or wood knocking. I'm just kind of glancing through some of these pages again, like I said, rock throwing. Put in the context, though, of uh, natural history, I guess you could say. And we did a lot of reflecting and what have you as we were putting all this together. I think that's uh, an interesting um, section of the book that was something that, that we hadn't really uh, maybe considered as as original part of the of the process, but mm-hmm. it was an interesting uh, experience to to go through. We as we uh, you know kind of concluded the writing of this, you know, sitting back and 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 looking at what does all this really mean, and again, how does it fit in with uh, what's known about the great apes, for example. I have two favorite sections of the monograph. One is the introduction, where we do the abstract. We go into background. We go, in, we go into the background. We go into the connection to the possible uh, in the possible lineage of this species. What it could be. We go. We talk about Gigantopithecus, and we make that case. And I think it's a pretty strong argument. And then also the discussion is also another very favorite section of mine. And I think there's some very good arguments made in there, you know, uh, particularly about the specimen collection. It's a very airtight argument. I think that as we were doing it and, and talking about the discussion session specifically, it, it, I think it did a really good job of making us sort of stop and, and, and look at all the things that we collected. And I mean, we call it discussion because we had the discussion and it made us sort of stop and evaluate the evidence that we had collected ourselves in exactly. a way that I don't think that we had had time. We just kept moving mm-hmm. forward. We kept going to the next operation mm-hmm. or pushing for the next week in there. Um, but but writing the OPM really made us sort of s- slow down and stop and, and sit and look at it. And, and I think that was that was highly valuable for us as an organization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, people yeah, and it, who, who read it and it gave us a chance. It gave us, yeah, and it gave us a chance. Uh, you know, like I was talking about, uh, it gave us a chance to really. And we had done it in a couple of uh, little short little pieces we had put out. Brian, you had written something, um, you know, about uh, about uh, the collection of a specimen, why it's necessary. 
but it gave us a really good chance, an opportunity to really articulate what specimen collection is about, why it's necessary, why it's still continued, why it's still a very common practice in science today, what benefits are gained from it. It really talks about how we are on, we're on the right side of this. We're on the side of science. And uh, there are many, many, many scientists who agree with this. In fact, the majority. Any new species must be verified with the collection of a type specimen. It's just the way it is. The discussion gave us the opportunity to really make that argument as strongly as we could. I think if someone, if anyone that hasn't read it yet was to be encouraged to look at it, I think that uh, if they were to read like the first 20 pages and the last 20 pages, they'd get a a really, really good overview of the whole document and, and they'd get some really good stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And it wouldn't seem overwhelming as far as you expect me to read 200 some pages of stuff. No, I don't think so. But 40 well, pages or so, that, that's something that, you know, is doable. Yeah. And, it, 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 and, you know, admittedly, it gets very mundane when you're reading all of the accounts from the after action reports. That gets after a while, that gets pretty repetitive. The reports in particular get very repetitive. You know, you sort, yeah. of, you sort of you go into a trance as you read them because it's part of their nature, but they just sort of like, you know, then this happened, then this happened. And most of the time when they're talking about that, nothing is happening, right? But if you look at the <laughs> monograph, it's sort of the distillation of all the time something did happen. So you don't have to like wade through all of that stuff. I would say that the monograph explains what we're about. It explains what we've done doesn't really talk about the future, but uh, I think you can just read the monograph and you can see that the course that we're on. We're going to continue to do this as long as we are able to do it. I had the conversation with Paul Bowman and Alton Higgins and Ken Helmer, and we all agreed to a person that we actually have an ethical responsibility now, based on what we know, to do everything we can to, to ensure that this animal is known in some way by science. Yeah, to go forward, though, we're going to need uh, younger members to take the place of some of us, some of us old dogs. Brandon, I had a question for you. You you were in the organization for for just a few months uh, before this uh, monograph came out. Uh, did it, did it have any kind of a uh, impact on on your perception regarding the group or what we're doing? It did. It definitely did. After I read the monograph, it sort of just blew my mind wide open as far as my thoughts on the existence of this thing. And reading the monograph just encouraged me that much more to actually go down to Area X and experience what you guys were writing about. And for me, you know, the the moment I went down to Area X, I had my first visual before I even got out of the truck. And that was all because of the monograph. So And that it, was in 2015, which was just shortly after the monograph had been released, right? Right. right. That's correct. Yeah. It was released in March 2015, and then you had your sighting, what, July? I think it was August. I hope that the people who are reading the monograph and aren't a member of the group might take that stance now. You can join the group and you can experience these things. You can see what we've been seeing. It's just you have to be there to to do it. You, you've all sort of uncovered the ulterior motive of the reason why we do things like this podcast is to try to uh, excite and encourage people to join the effort. So good job. <laughs> we need young people. I mean, we, we, we do because, you know, I, uh, I injured my back three years ago up there and it was a pretty significant injury, very significant injury and had to have significant surgery. And this is last trip. I bummed up my knee pretty badly. You know, those things happen more and more as you get older. Well, I do, I do appreciate you guys uh, taking the time out to talk to us today. So, uh, uh Alton and Daryl, thank you so much for, for hanging out. My pleasure. You're welcome. Thanks. All right, great. 
Well, we've come to the end of our first episode, Brandon. This is it. Episode one, we're done. It's been a long journey. <laughs> From the, even the <laughs> beginning of this episode to the end, it's been a long journey. Well, uh, so if, if you like what you heard, if you like the show, uh, please subscribe in iTunes if that's how you get your podcast. Uh, leave us a, a rating or review there. That actually helps other people find the show. It helps raise it to the top. So that would be appreciated. Brandon, if they want to leave us some feedback, uh, where should they go do that? They can also go to our official Facebook page. If you go to Facebook and just search North American Wood Ape Conservancy, we're the first thing that pops up. Yep. You can talk to us there. Leave us feedback there. That'd be great. How about our website? Woodape.org. Woodape.org. Uh, well, with that, I think we're going to we're gonna wrap this one up. I think it's time. So in uh, the second episode will be out in the coming months. It's going to be all about the... Uh, the our adventures with with nanotag technology so look forward to that i'm really looking forward to, to telling that story to you guys so until then brandon brian we'll see you later see you later guys Microphone Yetis were harmed during the recording of this podcast.